I'm going to raise my hand here for a second and say, but like, what about you just use an XLR mic with a, like a cheap, nice little basic interface and a voice meter banana? Sure. But I mean, like the, the counterpoint to that would be, uh, it's not quite as accessible. And if you can put it at a price point in terms of being competitive with that setup and then lower the threshold of, uh, knowledge to be able to get it usable. Um, then I think it makes sense. You know what you don't need uh, fancy audio equipment for is the episode 41 of the Halcyon Frequency podcast airing live October 30th, the day before Spooky Day uh, 2022. I'm always spooky and I'm blind and I'm joined by Bloody Drongo today, how are you? I'm very well. I'm only part-time spooky, but uh, definitely putting in a good showing this month. And uh, always spooky, as he's definitely not a vile force of darkness, is a returning guest host, Tekid. How are you? That's me, and I'm doing pretty well. Well, that's fantastic to hear. Yeah, I we we, we were just kind of sitting here talking about like audio gear <laughs> off stream and, or before the like official recording here started, and then, and I sit here and I I kind of go like you know I I always feel kind of like a big meanie when I am talking about audio gear because like at the end of the day if none of this stuff is necessary it's like it's bells and whistles to put shine on something that almost like is irrelevant yeah like some some of my favorite streams back in the day were just like the crappiest webcam mics and whatnot it's like i i, I don't think that I, I think actually kind of the the branding of everything is it's 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 for gamers it's for people's entertainment let's give this to you so that you can entertain other people is almost like makes it seem like it's necessary and i it, to me i the thing that actually irks me about all of those brands kind of being like oh it's this but for gamers is it is it makes people who are just getting started feel like they need this stuff and then suddenly you have 500 dollars worth of gear and nobody watching and you're like what's wrong and that that kind of makes me sad yeah i think it's an interesting balance though because i would say that in terms of areas like specifically from a streaming or content production standpoint i would say audio is probably the most uh, important factor more so than like a having a good camera or having a really powerful pc setup i would say having a good audio device to capture your commentary is probably the most important thing um but yeah you're definitely right that there's a, a big kind of marketing niche of trying to specifically sell it to a certain demographic such as gamers but i mean that that happens all over all over the place right you know i'm surprised that we don't have like gamer vegetables in supermarkets it's like trying to sell fancy guitars to kids that are just learning to play Smoke on the Water. Sure. Yeah. I always <laughs> I always dodge anything that's marketed to a demographic. Just go for the stuff that's marketed to a use case, not a demographic, right? It's not for gamers. It's for what you're doing with it because you're not gaming with your microphone. Nobody's gaming with their microphone. Well, maybe there's a game out there that you actually game with your microphone. But mm -hmm. then if I have to if I have to guess if you're out there and you're wondering, how am I supposed to pick what to buy? If I go to an audiophile forum, you know, they all tell me I need $6,000 worth of equipment. If I go to anywhere else, they tell me to just get this cheap thing. Uh, I always just buy the second price point from the bottom. And uh, usually, even with other stuff too, not just audio equipment, usually that's the real entry point. 
So mm-hmm. that's what I got. I got a hundred dollar microphone because the cheap price points are like thirty to sixty, and then a yep. hundred to a hundred and fifty is your next price point, and so you just go for that. And usually that's where it really starts when you're talking about real products, especially for 100%. things like electronics. I completely agree. I just wanted to say that now is my rare opportunity to shout out the video game There Came an Echo, a uh, kind of real-time game with pause that's entirely controlled by you shouting into a microphone at your soldiers to target target <laughs> alpha. Well, there you Soldier go. Soldier ba- B, Amazing. shoot target beta, move to left third. Four. It's like the hardest thing to actually play, and it barely works. But when it does, it's really cool. There's a use case for a gamer microphone if you're yeah, playing you that game. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if we could teach Siri to play that game. Now they just needed to make it into a battle royale and make it esports oh, ready, and yeah, we're off to the races. Just imagine, a, like, a, a, like have a whole bunch of people just like sitting in an arena, shouting into microphones, trying to give orders to their soldiers. Oh my goodness! Yeah. I'd like to hear an AI programmed to be really good at that game, and then isolate the AI and just listen to the audio that it's inputting, and just hearing it just ramble off a thousand orders. A second yeah that'd be really interesting that would be. be super cool although I, on, on the topic of like buying a microphone for a use case i do think it's kind of funny though that like you, you say that you avoid uh tech and you say that you you avoid features that are like marketed to a demographic and we both ended up with the road podcasting microphone yeah it's true but i will i will say though i did my research and uh it was also very good for other people who were doing simple audio recording with a basic interface is pretty much what it's marketed for, I think. Mm-hmm. It's marketed for bedroom podcasting, basically. Mm. But I, I went for this particular microphone because it when I, I, when I, when I bought it, actually, I got to test it. Um, I went to a t- Tom Lee Music, which no longer exists here because it went out of business the literal second the pandemic started. But um, I, I went in there and they had like a, a microphone testing booth. So I got to test a Shure SM7B, a Rode Procaster and various other microphones. And they would like record a minute of audio and then I could like listen to it. And at least from my inexperienced ear, uh, this microphone sounded almost identical to the Rode Procaster, except the difference was $450. Um, mm-hmm. wow. So I went with the pod mic instead of the Procaster. I think that's yeah. the big thing when you're talking about electronics. And this is why I think I agree with your uh, your point, Tekkit, about going for the kind of the step above and tr- like the true like bottom of the barrel entry level sort of stuff is because once you get past that that point, really it's very much diminishing returns in terms of the improvement or you really need a, a very high, you know, kind of skill base um, and knowledge to actually maximize it and get the, the very, very best out of it. Uh, it becomes quite difficult. Oh, yeah. I have to, I mean, I still would have to learn uh, exactly how far away I should be and how far away I am right now from my microphone before I had to worry about the negative 50 decibel noise level that it mm-hmm. you know it has. That's the noise floor of this microphone in my current booth. And like negative 50 decibels, uh, I'm not recording for Hollywood productions. That doesn't matter. I should probably concern myself with uh, speaking better or just being closer to the microphone or something or getting a pop filter. Yeah. I just love the fact that we live in a day and age where a lot of this stuff, like 
pretty professional equipment and technology is so easily accessible. Yeah, uh, I mean, especially compared to like 20, 30 years ago. Even when I started, like when I was when I started, like my first ever streams were in 2012, and I started trying to take this seriously in 2013, and then like really got going in 2014. Like back then, I remember looking for microphones, and like the option was basically a uh, Audio Technica AT 2020 or a Blue Yeti or a Blue Snowball. Th those were like the available microphones, and then everything else was like. Uh, close to a thousand dollars or more expensive. It was like then it was just the Shure SM7B and everything else. <laughs> after that, like there was not a lot of like user accessible, affordable microphones, with the exception of like headset mics. So the result was from like 2012, 2013 until 2015, I used just a, a gaming headset mic, and then I yeah. bought a Blue Yeti at a point. I had this uh, pair of headphones from. My ex's father, well, I didn't have them. She had them, but they were her father's and they were from the seventies and I put them on and I was like, oh, cool. You know, like some vintage headphones. And I listened to something and I was like, these are the absolute worst headphones I have ever heard anything <laughs> through. This is trash. Who could listen to anything through this garbage? And I was like, you couldn't get away with selling this to anybody right now. This could cost one dollar this could be a dollar store set of headphones and people would they'd skip it <laughs> yeah i mean like like yeah things have must have come a long way because like you know they weren't they weren't great and i know they were old but there's no way they ever sounded good you know i i'm when it comes to headphones specifically i'm very spoiled because in 2011 my mom gave me a set of Sen sennheiser hd 650s for christmas um which i have you i've used that same pair of headphones since i mean they don't have a microphone on them like they're just like studio quality like open back headphones but like I, I'm so spoiled when it comes to audio quality that it's like, it's not even funny. Like I, whenever I, ha I dread having to go out to buy like a cheap headset for my phone just to like walk around outside with, because it's like, oh God, I have to find something that doesn't cost a billion dollars and also doesn't sound like garbage. How do I do this? See, I'm very much like not an audiophile. Like I, I guess I'd be like the opposite of it, whatever it is. And I find that, yes, I can tell the difference between different like, head headphones or or whatever but i will become acclimatized to what i whatever whatever i'm using within like half an hour or 20 minutes or so and it doesn't bother me after that and i'm just like eh, yeah i can make do with this i'm so uh I, yeah i was i was just gonna say so i guess my rants about uh sound stage and a set of headphones wouldn't be very effective eh <laughs> probably not oh. <laughs> it's wasted on me i am a uh, i'm a very like one simple but solid solution for everything kind of guy that's mm -hmm. i like to buy something small that's reasonably you know it, it doesn't have to be like a you know for whatever it is like if it's audio it doesn't have to be a huge interface with a bunch of knobs and sliders uh but it has to be good quality so even my uh, i have a dac uh digital audio converter or digital analog converter on my desk and it was 120 dollars and it's way better than anything your computer will put out uh your computer the dac in your computer sucks and uh, but it's small and it just does what it does and that's just the one i have and it, pretty much every aspect of life it's just one like i have a razor too 
I just have a, a straight razor for shaving and I spent a hundred and ten dollars on it, I think. Uh, but it's good and it's the only one I'll ever own. And uh, that's it. You know, I'm done buying razors forever and I'm done buying a DAC. I'll have this one forever. And if I go big with my streams, you know, or something like that, maybe I'd buy more audio stuff, but usually one simple but good solution for every problem in life. You know, it's, it's kind of funny. My, my grandmother has this story that she loves to tell. And my dad used to retell this story to me in a way that made it sound negative, but I always think it's positive, which was my grandmother, uh, throughout her entire life, even till now where she lives in, in an old folks home, she's owned the same toaster. And this toaster was made by a Canadian company and they made toasters in the late sixties. And, they made the best toaster that, and the only toaster that you'll ever need. It has like it's very easy to clean, it's very easy to maintenance, and it it's made out of solid steel. They weren't cheap, and they never break. And they made toasters for about a decade, and then they went out of business because nobody needed new toasters. Um, and my grandmother always talks about how this is the greatest toaster of all time, and how she's going to keep it for her entire life, and like give it to some member of the family when she passes away. And my dad always talked about it like it was this terrible thing because this company went out of business and everybody lost their jobs. He's like, they should have made worse toasters. I'm like, Dad, I think you're missing the point. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's funny. You know, it is. That's that's actually a good thing too. Toasters. It fits this conversation perfectly. Toasters. I actually saw some videos on this. First of all, microwaves peaked in the 90s. Apparently, toasters mm-hmm. peaked in the 40s. Toasters have really? never been as good as they were in the 40s. Huh. I I. Would like to state this though: the best toaster is my cast iron frying pan. Mm-hmm. Yep. Nice. Yep. That's. Oh, there's nothing like some sourdough grilled cheese on a cast iron. Damn. I guess my problem is is that it might I have probably a little bit of a different attitude towards this stuff because I like I would tend to not so much with toasters because it doesn't really fit in that box, but uh, when it comes to like audio equipment or something that has uh relatability to a skill or a hobby or an interest or something like that i will tend to buy something that i know will make me a little bit uncomfortable in terms of my knowledge of how to actually use it and i will try and buy something that i'll grow into and kind of that's how i started out like i bought like a lot of my audio setup before i really had any idea of what i was really doing with it and it's probably a, a bad example because there's probably a lot of people out there that buy stuff that they don't really know how to use and get the best out of. Um, but at least for me, it worked out. Like I'm, I'm pretty happy with, with what I've got and it makes me feel good that I've been able to learn, you know, some of those skills about audio shaping and stuff like that and, you know, how to get the best out of a mixer and the microphone and then, you know, lighting and, you know, camera setup and all that stuff. Like it's all been a, a, a fun learning process and I've really enjoyed challenging myself with that. I do that with synthesizers and hobbies. But when it comes to like work, like for, for camping stuff, I will just buy stuff for camping and then take it camping and try and make it work, right? And I, and I enjoy that. Like I, I, I bought a lot of cooking equipment and a stove that I'd never used before and learned how to use it while I was camping. And that was a lot of fun. Um, but when it comes to work stuff, I go the exact opposite route. I buy something that I know will work and I use it until I decide that I need something else. And then I add that into the system over time, very slowly. 
in very small pieces because I want things to work. And like, uh, take this as an example, like when OBS updated recently and then suddenly like streamer Twitter was just like exploding with everyone's like, oh God, none of my <laughs> shit works. Like send help. Um, and I, I'm sitting there going like, Yes, yes, I don't use any fancy plugins. So thus all my <laughs> stuff works perfectly. <laughs> and yep. I it's kind of the, the, the way I, I want things to work and that that's my priority. I, I so I, I I tend to go in the opposite way. But on the topic of wanting things to work, we should go to a real quick break, I think. And then when we come back, we're gonna talk about the games that we've been playing this week. We got a whole bunch of stuff on the docket, and because Tech is here, I get to talk about Dwarf Fortress, which is a rare occurrence. So that that's exciting. Uh, there's also going to be probably quite a bit of RimWorld and other interesting things. So uh, when we return, right after this, uh, games will commence. Enjoy this quick break. Hi, Arch from Arch Play Stuff here, and you're listening to the Halcyon Frequency Podcast, Honduras's number one gaming podcast. Back to the show. And we're back with episode 41 of the Halcyon Frequency Podcast, hosted by Blind, and I'm joined by Bloody Drongo and Tekid, and uh, we're going to talk about the games that we've been playing this week. So I think probably a good spot to start here, because I think we're going to be pretty big game heavy on this one, is uh, Drongo, do you want to tell me a little bit about Stranded Alien Dawn? Sure. So... Stranded Alien Dawn is a game that has recently come out to... Is it Early Access? I think it might be. Um, but I got sent a key and I had a little bit of a play around with it offline. It shares a, I would say, a really high amount in common with RimWorld in terms of the actual game UI and how you interact with the world and how you interact with your, your pawns. It is set in a kind of a different setting. It's a little bit more alien, uh, as the name might suggest. And it has definitely a very different art uh, art style around it. It's more kind of a 3D world that you're interacting with rather than a top-down uh, 2D plane. And yeah, I've, I, I've played it a little bit. For me personally, uh, at least from what I've played so far, it hasn't done enough in my mind to substantially differentiate itself from RimWorld. Um, however, I can definitely see a lot of potential with it. And I think it could become and grow into a, a really, really fun game as it kind of develops its own personality around the, the, the feature differences that it has. Um, but it is still a very, very young game, so I think it has a, a, a bright future ahead of it. And I know a lot of other people who are within the RimWorld community have talked quite uh, positively about it and have enjoyed it and have played much more than I have. So they probably have a better understanding of kind of where it grows into its own a bit more. Yeah, I, I know FG was saying some pretty positive things about this game, as well as Bellinair was... Uh quite positive on it um the thing that kind of like strikes me about this one is it's it's a really short early access period that they're planning for it's like six months and then they're supposed to hit full release mm -hmm. um so it, it from what it looked from from looking at it at, at a distance it looks like they've been working on it for quite some time and it it seems kind of 
it's int- I guess at the very least, it's it's really interesting to kind of see this genre kind of grow, and it's nice to see other people have attempts on it. You know, like there was Going Medieval. Uh, of course, yeah. there there's um, uh, Stardius, that game that just came out, and all those spaceship kind of looking games. Like I think yes. there's Nebula, which is on Kickstarter right now, uh, and then there's also oh god what's the other one there there's a there's another one that's coming anyway that all just kind of look like Rimworld. so it's nice to see somebody kind of make a game like this with kind of a different art style but like yeah is there anything that like stands out to you immediately that's unique from kind of the competition's offerings or is it largely just more of the same well i think i think the one differentiating factor that it has is that it is a, a 3d environment that you're dealing with not a top-down 2d plane like stardews or uh i think the one that's coming out soon is uh lords and villains yeah that, uh, that, that one's be been in early of. access for a bit but that that game's almost closer to like crusader kings and its structure it's weird but i quite i do quite like lords and villains though i haven't played it yet though um okay that's good to know um yeah, I, I think the 3D environment is is kind of the big biggest differentiating factor about it. And I would love to see them kind of do some more around that and kind of lean into that a little bit more. Um but yeah, I don't I don't know. I like I said, I've only played a little bit off stream. I haven't played super, super in depth in it. So there could well be some more stuff and there's maybe some people that have played quite a bit of it that are getting furiously outraged at my uh indifference to its own personality um in which case i apologize for nothing i'm doing the best i can (laughs) damn right um well that that is stranded alien dawn so before one gets stranded one must go to space so i'm gonna ask tekid to take the floor here briefly and talk to us about the space station 13 follow-up running in a new engine thank christ uh space station 14 ah yes space station 14 a uh it's a game. I mean, is it a game? It's a social experiment, uh, which is run as a game via a game engine, I suppose. And it's a, it's a game that's not out yet, but it does have a public playtest, so you can just go play it. <laughs> it is a public playtest. In fact, the game is actually an open source project, and you can get it. You don't even need to be in the playtest. That's a Steam playtest. So that's a playtest for people who want to go through their Steam account. Pretty sure you could just go to GitHub and get the game if you wanted to. If you can find the download button, which is always a challenge on GitHub. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But Space Station 14, if you know about Space Station 13, you know about Space Station 14, except Space Station 14 is not complete. It's being uh, built from the ground up as a clone and then probably eventually a successor with additional features and stuff to Space Station 13. But uh, it's you, you join a spaceship as a shift worker and it's a very much social game where uh, you have a job to do. It's fairly simple. It changes every time a little bit. Like, let's, let's say, for example, you're a botanist. Uh, your job is to grow plants. So you go to your botany section, which you have access to. The other doors are locked to you if they're for something else like engineering. And you start growing plants. And you give the plants to the chef who cooks the things. That's his job. And then he gives them to the bartender who serves, you know, food or alcohol or whatever. And then the clown shows up and starts trashing the bar uh, because he's a clown and everybody hates the clown. And I think the clown hates everybody else, but usually he only honks. So it's hard to tell exactly what his intentions are. Uh, (laughs) Then security shows up and uh, without warning or just cause, 
fires at the clown in the tavern and uh, catches people in the crossfire. Uh, one of them throws flashbangs and things just get out of control. And eventually the station goes to hell, uh, figuratively and possibly literally, uh, but usually figuratively. It's a it's a hell of an experience and it changes every time because it's completely driven by the players. Nothing, the game doesn't provide any conflict. You just show up and someone starts screwing around and then antics ensue. And, you know, eventually the the whole station is in under threat. My my favorite like quote about Space Station 13 specifically from a uh, person on the internet was uh, Space Station 13 is massive brain among us. And yeah. that's basically <laughs> what it is because there there is some like wrenches that the game throws in where certain people will inevitably end up causing chaos. There, yeah. there are things in place that will cause uh, mm. all hell to break loose inevitably in Space yeah. Station 13 and I suppose also 14. It's- Slightly inaccurate to say that the game gives no conflict. The game sets up conflict. Uh, there's different game modes, and I believe Space Station 14 may have already diverged a little bit because it's an open source project. People are just kind of putting in the things they they want to see right now, and I think maybe some of the game modes are different. But um, not only are there game modes, so one game mode is like Trader, and then that's like Among Us. So certain people are set up with. Uh, a mission list that acts against the stations, uh, you know, against the the safety of the station. They're supposed to steal things, kill people, whatever. And then there's other game modes where other things might happen, like all of a sudden a Xeno threat appears or whatever. And they're non-copyright infringing Xenomorphs. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. And then also the... Um, the different servers all have different rules. It's it's such a social game that there isn't even a standard set of rules for it. Uh, the game allows you to do a lot of stuff that you shouldn't be doing, and each server will have its own rules. So there's heavy roleplay servers. There's basically zero roleplay servers. But the game is designed to be at least modestly roleplay. You're at least a little bit supposed to act like the employee that you are, the crew member that you are. So if you're the botanist, uh, I once, so here's a little story. I once was a botanist, tried, decided to try out the, the career for a change. I was walking down the hallway when I saw someone beating the clown to death. Or no, the clown was beating someone else to death. And uh, so I looked at him and I was like, what the hell is this? Like, what's going on here? And they're like, he's a traitor. So I called security over because I was like, okay, so security, right? So I'm like, security, we got a guy beating the clown to death, claiming he's a traitor. And the guy's like, no, don't call security. Security will, will whatever. And so security comes over and you know beats this guy down. And this guy starts yelling at me like, Whoa, what are you doing, man? You don't know what you're doing. And I'm like, I'm a botanist, dude. I do not have the authority to kill the clown you don't have the authority to kill the clown i don't know what he was but i was like no one here so this is the, how the game is supposed to work you're supposed to at least modestly role play i'm like i'm a botanist you're expecting me to help you commit a murder no <laughs> no bro i i i've played one round of space station 14 and this was back during the but when it was a closed play test 
and I just normal round of trader. Um, and I had, uh, well, I, I was, I was the janitor. So my job was to go around and clean up messes and, uh, put down wet floor signs. And, um, you know, I'm just wandering around and, uh, I, I get a call on my radio that says, uh, he- head down towards where the, where the bar is because someone spilled a drink. I'm like, all right. So truck my stuff over there and I'm mopping up this spilled beverage. And, um, then out of nowhere, uh, someone walked a group of like a couple guys. I'm not sure what section of the ship they were from, because admittedly, this was my first time playing space station 14. Um, and things look kind of different than 13, a bunch of guys wandered in and they were blabbing about some stuff. And then one of them clubs me over the head and I get knocked unconscious. Then I wake up in the slammer and I'm in prison for some reason. (laughs) And every single time I tried to speak, they'd tase me. And that was the rest (laughs) of the game. It sounds like security might, one of the security guys might have been a traitor or something. I, I, I think so. So I just sat there screaming for about 30 minutes until the round ended. Yeah. But I um, usually, uh, I, I usually play engineer and engineer's job is to basically just wander around or sit in the bar and wait for something to fix. And then, you know, something blows up and you got to go fix all the wires. Cause that's all stuff in the game. You know, like the wires can be destroyed. The floor panels can be taken up and, uh, you know, everything, even the garbage shoots from the garbage to the recycling room uh, can be ripped up and destroyed. So I got to go and I got to fix it. And that's the thing about the game is you n- almost never really know why it's happening unless you are causing it or it is being done to you. You're almost always like, what the hell is going on? And that's what I say. Every time I show up, I'm like, what the hell is this? I, I look at the first person I see and I'm like, explain like what is going on here <laughs> but have you ever like been been the trader in that instance and then you were the guy going in there and ripping the wires out i don't play trader that often no i did play once and i had to break into security uh but i got caught pretty fast and then i just decided to go all out and i i grabbed a weapon and started firing because i was like i you know i've been my cover's blown and then they took me down. So I didn't actually get to do much in terms of destroying a station, but uh, yeah. I was, you know. I was watching a, a, a friend of mine who streams a lot of space station 13 and he was um, security and his job was to uh, watch the firearms, which is literally just you sit in a booth and occasionally security dudes will show up and they'll be like, I need, X weapon and then you give them that weapon if they have the proper clearance and suddenly like the bartender shows up and says I need a shotgun he goes why do you need a shotgun he goes for personal protection he goes against what you're a bartender the clown probably uh well you see there's these guys in the bar and he goes all right and then eventually like he calls security down and uh gets a replacement for his post so he can go check out what's going on in the bar goes into the bar and there's a flesh monster that's just like expanding (laughs) out from behind the bar and uh filling up the entire anyway so the the entire spaceship got eaten by a wall of flesh amazing i mean i've i i have heard quite a bit about space station 13 i wasn't aware that there was a space station 14 um but it was a game that i always really enjoyed hearing stories about much like dwarf fortress in a way i always enjoyed reading and hearing about the stories in the game more than I like the idea of actually playing the game. And uh, man, there are some fantastic stories. I love that. Yeah, Space, Space Station 13 is in a weird place because like there's SS13, which is the game that the majority of people who play Space Station 13 play. And it runs on mm-hmm. an engine called Beyond, which is uh, is 
and looks like it's a piece of software from 1996 because it's a piece of software from 1996 that really hasn't been updated. It never did get beyond its original, uh, you know, time. <laughs> and it, it's just, it's a multiplayer game launcher from the 90s. And it, it's really funny. You load it up and there's all these games on there. There's like 80 games that come included with Beyond when you download it Beyond. And they all have like maybe one to five players, right? And then Space Station 13 is just three to 5,000. <laughs> yeah, and wow. Since then, like, there's been there's been multiple attempts to, like, fork it out. And because, like, the source code got leaked a long time ago, and, like, it it became open source from there. And so, like, every single portion of the, like, Space Station 13 community basically have their own forks of it that all run on Beyond. So there's all these different mm -hmm. servers, but each one of the servers is actually kind of a different game in a lot of ways. And that's where all these modes come from because everybody wants to play basically different games built into it. And so there's been multiple attempts to rework it over the years. There was Unity Station, which is still actually has a Steam page, but from what I can tell is largely just dead. Um, but Space Station 14 has been, like, perhaps the most successful attempt to make a, like, open source follow-up to this uh, kind of catastrophe of old code. <laughs> um, Amazing. It's I'm I'm I want to stream Space Station 14. I just I I don't I don't know if I can because I it's really hard to read the chat and Twitch chat and be in character and be in Twitch chat character and in game chat character and also manage all of the stuff in the game because like one of the one of the sure. founding lines about Space Station 13 and now 14 is if you can sit down at a bar, drink from a beverage and smoke a cigarette without lighting your hair on fire, you can play Space Station 13. <laughs> And, I mean, that's uh, a pretty high barrier to entry. I don't know if I can manage that personally. The uh, the thing about streaming that game, though, I tried it once, though, and I quickly realized that you just have to be the exact kind of player that you need to be to make it an entertaining stream for people because most of the ways you can play that game are not entertaining. You spend large swaths of time uh, just kind of enjoying... Uh, little things that viewers aren't there for you know like no one jumps on the twitch to watch you chat with uh you know with cargo about getting steel or something yeah. but if you're like if you're a big uh trader player and you like to be creative and aggressive in your uh sabotage and stuff then you could probably stream it but me i could never stream it because i would be the most boring streamer on twitch for that time you know, you say that, but people, like, there's thousands and thousands of people watching people be crappy police officers in Grand Theft Auto RP servers. <laughs> oh, wow. I mean, that hours. is true. I mean, I think it's an interesting thing, right, that the audience for, like, semi-convincing RP stuff has certainly grown, and I feel like there is, you know, a growing audience for that type of content, which is maybe a little bit more kind of delayed uh delayed gratification in that sense where you're kind of waiting for the build up and going through those kind of quiet moments to make those other more exciting moments and pivotal moments a little bit more interesting yeah i mean the the biggest streamer that i know who who plays ss13's rust money and he exclusively plays the clown mm -hmm. like that's all he does is he plays clown and he yeah. just screws with people Aggressive sabotage. That's, that's what the literally is. the most aggressive sabotage. Um, just he, he's clown. He honks at people and he breaks stuff. He just like walks in. He just walk, try, tries his best to get guns and then starts shooting people. Um, but you know, it's it's a it's a video game. That's for sure. But um, 
I think that uh, I think it's time that we we step away from space and come down to uh, a world, maybe even a, a Rim World, if you will, uh, because Rim World has got a uh, a new DLC, and I I know that you've mm-hmm. been messing with that, Drongo. So, talk to yes. us about Rim World Biotech. Yeah, so Rim World Biotech released last week, and or. Oh, like technically the week before, uh, but it has come out. It has a whole bunch of new content. I would say it is by far the most expansive DLC in terms of its content. It adds in two new starting scenarios, the Mechator scenario and also the uh, Sanjafage starting scenario, which is kind of like a, a space vampire. It adds in the whole a whole system for managing genetics in terms of uh, traits and special attributes your characters can have. It adds in multiple new factions to the game that all have their own uh, traits. So you can now find mole men, you can find little fire-breathing imp people, you can have Neanderthal tribes running around, and you can have pigmen and wolfmen and all kinds of bizarre and wonderful stuff. It also adds in the ability to uh, have children to the game. This was an aspect that I was extremely at- uh, apprehensive about when I first heard it. And I was definitely on the side of the fence where I was like, you know what? I don't think Rimworld needs kids and I probably will opt out. And that is a feature where you can opt out to have kids in your game and you can also opt out to have kids involved in combat as well. Um, And uh, I've been pleasantly surprised, uh, I have to say, in terms of how children have been implemented to the game. There's a full uh, system that operates around how they get raised. You can educate them. They gain traits and skills and knowledge. It's really, really fleshed out and it's been a... A quite a pleasant surprise and it's become one of my favorite features of the new game to the point where I've started a playthrough a new challenge run in RimWorld at the moment where I'm basically running a vampire academy for gifted kids and our goal is to raise 100 students to adulthood and have them graduate our academy and uh, I mean there's other stuff that it's added in as well there's a whole bunch of new tech stuff um, there's new systems involving f- uh, like gas mechanics and pollution. Uh, there's a ho- the ability to build and customize your own mechanoids and name them and control them. Uh, there's a mini progression system for summoning almost like boss battles to progress down certain paths of the tech tree. Uh, it's just, yeah, there's a boatload of content. It is the most expensive DLC that's out right now. Um, but yeah, it is, it is really, really cool. Can you make cat girls? Yeah, I believe you can. Well, there it is. Uh, or at least wolf girls. I don't know. Maybe that's like in the middle for you, but yeah. It's not for Hold me. On. It's we for just, the we have entire a title for the episode now. <laughs> it's not for me. It's for the entire subreddit. See, I think Tynan was was getting wise to something. He noticed he noticed the subreddit and was like, they want space furries. That's what they really want. <laughs> yeah, give give them what they want. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I think, I think you can, I'm not sure. Um, I know there's already mods out there for that stuff if you're that way inclined. So, yeah. 
I mean, the first thing I saw after this DLC released was a tweet that just said, my miners are miners. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I just yeah. saw a, a comment or a review that says putting the infant back in infantry. Oh boy! <laughs> <laughs> oh dear! Yeah, it's it's pretty grim. I mean, it's it's really interesting. I think because RimWorld kind of straddles this line of being a really dark universe to the point that I would say it's probably inappropriate and just not very enjoyable. However, it delivers it in a way that I think it has a lot to do with the art style. It, it delivers it in a way that is usually unoffensive in the moment and you can kind of get on board with it. And it's just like, it, it's, I, it's I don't know. It's somewhere like between an adult swim special and like, uh, like a war film. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, riff, riffing on that adult swim special. Like it's it's... I don't know. It's somewhere between Robot Chicken and like Commando, or I, right. I, I don't know. It's like, look, everybody. We know that you had to trap your children into a room with giant alien insects and burn everything inside of it alive, children included, in order to save uh, your colony from the insect threat. But they're dehumanized just enough. Just enough, a sprinkle <laughs> yeah. of dehumanization on all your pawns, and it's fine. It's fine that you just yeah. incinerated just, your children. Just enough that you can sleep at night. But also, you still find yourself becoming attached, and you know you, you do get sad when things go wrong and your, your favorite pawns die and things like that. And I think that's one of the things for me that I really enjoy about the game is that you, it does a really good job of allowing you to feel some degree of personal attachment to what's happening in the game and a relatability to the events that occur and the actual narrative that gets progressively drawn out in front of you. And that's definitely a big selling point for me. And for children too, I think I think it's definitely a big uh, risk that Tynan took putting children in the game, but I do mm -hmm. think that not only does the dehumanization help, and I haven't played uh, biotech yet, so I don't really know how it's how well this is done, but just uh, just leaning into or leaning heavily towards the player benefiting from children being safe and mm -hmm. guarded makes it less way less on his shoulders as the creator of the game. Uh, what happens to kids because if if the game insists that you take care of your kids and there's no benefit of doing anything else with them then really it's you as a player it's not the game being evil because the game you know the game sets you up and says you should mm -hmm. be protecting your kids if they were if the game set them up as just like rando fodder you know like just more yeah. pawns that that have no benefit of being protected or there's no real detriment to losing them then i think he would be in hot water for having put them in the game because people would just be like you just gave us a, a you know additional organ farms is all they are yeah and then it would have been a completely different story i i agree i think i think the way that they've been implemented manages to kind of pretty neatly land in the space that i think he was aiming for and that you 
do feel some kind of obligation to look after them and you do get rewarded for looking after them pretty heftily they can quickly become like if you raise one of your children really well um basically as they progress the more educated they become the more traits or the better traits they have access to as they grow up and the better skill uh the more amount of skills that you can assign to them and they so basically you can have if you raise a child from a baby to uh, a young adult they can easily be a very specialized and very useful pawn in your colony so you get rewarded quite heftily for it but you also get punished as well if you're not in a good spot and it can become quite difficult if you do end up in a situation where you're just not able to take care of your kids and the game really kind of comes down on you pretty hard and I think that's, yeah, I think it lands in the right spot where you do feel obligated to look after them, not just from a, a moral standpoint, but even if you're somebody who just plays the game, not for the attachment to your, you know, your colonist, but, a, you know, you're trying to play it optimally or, or looking at it from a, a fungineering perspective, you're definitely incentivized to look after them. And I think that kind of takes a lot of the edge off. Yeah, actually... Yep. Quest, question about how kids work in this because I, I I haven't played this DLC and I'm more or less not planning to. Um, but mm. uh, how long does it take for kids to age to adulthood? Sure. So that that was also one of my big concerns. Um, so with kids, they will grow up at four times the speed of normal pawns up until they reach adulthood. Uh, okay. So the speed is very much accelerated. Is there a uh, lore can... reason for that, or is it just like? gameplay i i believe that's just a game mechanics okay. uh thing and i think it works out so the default is 400 percent growth speed um you can actually alter it in your scenario editor uh if you want it to be faster or if you want it to be slower if it's a deal breaker in that sense for you um but the from what i've played so far i've probably played about maybe 40 50 hours of rimworld with new biotech since it came out which is a reasonable amount considering not how, how long ago it came out and for me that 400 percent does feel like the sweet spot because it feels like it definitely takes some time to get there but you're not sitting there going oh man this is like really burdensome and i'm you know not seeing any of the rewards for what i'm investing into this individual yeah gotcha. time investment's a big thing that i mean even the real world you know I, you probably shouldn't reduce children to just investment <laughs> terms but children are a massive time yeah, investment sure. you know absolutely you know if time children and money what are you yeah, talking about if children grew up in one month people would probably care a lot less about their kids you know but <laughs> mm -hmm. but um uh what was i gonna say the, like okay so in the wild they have kids and then they leave them in a tree yeah. a half a year later yeah, go on. <laughs> for uh for perspective for people who aren't don't have a lot of experience in RimWorld. Uh, 400%, that means you're going to be going through about four years in game to get your kid to adulthood, right? Is it, what year, uh, what age is it to adulthood? It's 13 to adulthood. Oh, 13. So you got three in-game years. That would probably be about, for me, because I play games very meticulously, my viewers would know that. Uh, mm -hmm. They do know that. It'd probably be about 15 hours in the game to get to that point yeah like it's an investment that's uh you know longer than that like several days of playing that colony yeah and i think that you could probably make the argument well okay this doesn't really orient itself towards more casual players but i think all of the dlcs are definitely 
aimed at the audience that is already sold on RimWorld and are going to put in hundreds of hours into the game. And I think once you're at that point, you know, a 15 hour investment to raise a pawn that's going to become a, a real focal point for your community and that you've really invested into and got an attachment to makes that more important and more kind of a valuable experience and makes you more invested in the game. So I'm, yeah, I'm really happy with how biotech has gone so far. Plus the whole mech, mech thing is, is amazing. I've had a lot of fun with that. Yeah, I've noticed that besides cat girls, the uh, subreddit seems to have one common theme in all the mods that they like, and that besides the quality of life mods, and that is extending the power creep. Basically, the veteran RimWorld players have nailed down how to get to the end of what RimWorld has to offer with relative ease. And then the mods mm -hmm. come in and the mods are almost always just adding crazy new tech, crazy new abilities and all sorts of stuff you can do to move beyond the end of RimWorld's default power creep. And I think yeah. Tynan is wise to that and he knows what the subreddit is doing and he sees what people are sharing the most and he knows that that creep, to extend that creep for the veteran players and say, well, now you have a canon uh, method or a canon outlet for these long game plans, play in the long game, yes. you know, and that is kids now. Like this is your, you mm -hmm. don't have to depend on a mod to make your super soldiers anymore. You can raise yeah. a super soldier with this in-game, this, you know, vanilla in-game feature. Yeah. And it's not just about like, uh, to that point, it's not just about raising a kid. There's also the ability to kind of research and invest in your own kind of genetic department. So you can genetically modify your, your kids and create these all kinds of exotic, uh, you know, combinations that will allow your pawns to become those superhuman uh, individuals to help you know, again, extend the lifespan of the game and allow that power creep to continue, which is really fun. And for me, like my specialization in RimWorld is doing kind of really weird and interesting challenge runs within the game that try and approach it in a different way. So in the past, we've done things like capturing a pair of every single vanilla uh, animal in RimWorld, getting a breeding pair of them, building a ship big enough to get them uh, off the planet and then launching that. And that's taken, you know, that these sorts of challenge runs will take, you know, six to 12 months of, of actual IRL, uh, uh, you know, streams. And so, you know, you're doing hundreds and hundreds of hours into a playthrough and, you know, these sorts of DLCs and this sort of content really helps to kind of flesh out and give more flexibility to approaching the game in, in different and creative ways and challenge the player to work out how you want to implement this. And because there's so much depth and there's so much variety, there's rarely a one obvious route to go down to be optimal and fungineer the game. And a lot of the time you're being very reactionary as well. Um, so it's, yeah, it's just a, I'm just happy. I'm just a very happy RimWorld player right now. Yeah, I haven't played it since I started playing Dwarf Fortress more. I have. I mean, I've, I've jumped back into RimWorld, but then I always am like, why don't I just play Dwarf Fortress? But the, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, seeing the responses to all of the expansions, I got to say, you know, for all of the things people have to say about Tynan, I give him, you know, kudos and an A plus and extra credit and everything for his ability 
to pick out things that people both want and will actually work in a game. He does a really good job of seeing what his player base wants to do and choosing from those things what will actually work, what they'll actually enjoy, not what they think they want. You know, He's a mm. master at that, and all of his expansions have shown that. Everything he puts in the game works. Even if he misses some things, and this is, I haven't, like I said, I haven't really played these, but I've been, I follow the subreddit very carefully, not carefully, closely. Um, and it seems like even if he misses things and people complain about something not being in there, uh, everything he puts in there is always a hit. People always are like, yeah, that's something we wanted. So he's just really good at picking those things out. There was some points with ideology where people weren't that happy, but in general, I, I think he, I think uh, Tynan and team generally hit pretty hard when it comes to that. Yeah. yeah. I think the problem with ideology is that ideology was so expansive with the content that it added, but a lot of it was obfuscated between the mechanics that a lot of people really didn't see the potential, but also maybe weren't interested in going down that route. So they weren't interested in completely changing up the way that they play the game to make a faction that is blind but has a passion for being injured um and wants to be cannibals or you know really heavily into tech stuff and that completely changes the way that you play the game and approach your game and so for a lot of people that doesn't have any value but for people like me uh, that want those experiences to kind of challenge themselves and change the way you approach a playthrough those kind that kind of experience and content is really really valuable and i think tynan the interesting relationship i think that tynan has with the rimworld community is that he's got a very clear vision of what he wants from the game and i mean he would say that it's not a game it's a storytelling generator he wants it to be an experience more than something that you actually play um and to that end there's always a kind of tug of war between the community trying to be like well how can we survive this experience without kind of metagaming it and him being like well okay if you're going to metagame this and build like really cheesy kill boxes and you know use loads of traps and all this stuff then i'm going to take those things away from you to kind of force you into having a more authentic experience and there's always that tug of war of you know okay we're going to try and make the the we're going to play it as a game and him being like no i want you to have this in, as an experience and i think landing somewhere in between those two perspectives is a real sweet spot where i think the core community is kind of built isn't it interesting too how uh the community is so uh at large, like the whole community is so on board for a challenge. It, in one, in the one, in that one way, they're all very like-minded. Usually, communities are too split up to kind of make a move like that with a game, where you say, "Well, okay, you guys are making it a little too easy. I'm going to make the game harder," and that's for everybody. Mm -hmm. I'm going to make the game harder. If you own the game and you yeah. play the game, it's harder for you and everyone else. And if you did that to a game like Minecraft or something and you just, say, doubled the number of creepers or whatever, you just made it harder for everybody, then half of the community would blow up and be like, this isn't why I play Minecraft. You ruined the game for me. But in RimWorld, yeah. they do sometimes complain and they're like, oh, come on, what's with these sappers or what's with the drop pods coming through my roof? But ultimately, yeah. the entire community pretty much agrees, bring it on. They just, they're like, Except for fine. tornadoes. 
They, they removed tornadoes. Oh, yeah. Okay. And then put them back in, sort of. But <laughs> yeah. I recall that. Those that, yeah. were kind of BS. I, 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 yeah. I, I did have a run and uh, in RimWorld back when I played that game almost immediately because I spawned in and started building my initial shelter, and then a tornado came through right as winter was starting, and it sucked up my entire food oh, stockpile no. and all of my meds. I think the really important kind of factor there and why maybe some of those things get brought back is that... A, some of the bad implementations are things that remove the player agency and the ability to participate in the story with with like hurricane you're very much kind of the back seat to that you don't really have any way to kind of respond in any meaningful way whereas i would argue that most other threats and things that get thrown at you during the course of a playthrough you do have a decent degree of control in the way of your choice of response and how you uh handle that particular hurdle and i think that's kind of the really important differentiating factor is that you actually have the ability to participate in the story and and change the outcome in a meaningful way so i i guess this kind of brings this conversation to a the 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 overarching question when it comes to dlc for video games and because you did state that this is the most expensive rimworld dlc and at least here in canada mm -hmm. it's 30 bucks is it worth the money should people buy it Absolutely. I think if you're already a fan of RimWorld, then I think this is absolutely worth the money. It's very rare that RimWorld content comes up on sale. So yeah, I would say if you've already in played and enjoyed RimWorld, you're more than likely going to enjoy this. If you're unsure about RimWorld as a whole, maybe you've not played it before, my suggestion would be to get the base game. You're not going to be missing out on any substantial experiences. It's definitely not the case with RimWorld being a game that is incomplete without the DLCs. The DLCs are just extra icing on the cake once you get to a point where you feel like you've kind of fleshed out your full experience of the base game. So if you're not played it before, get the base game, play that, see how you like it, maybe play some mods in there. And then if you're happy with that and you've enjoyed that, then look at the DLCs. But yeah, if you're an existing RimWorld player, get Biotech, it's awesome. Fantastic. So now I think it's maybe time to go from big story generator. Well, actually, we went from social experiment story generator to popular story generator to maybe Dwarf Fortress. Oh, yes. Me and Tekkit are both here, so we this is kind of like an obligation at this point. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> so... You know, you know, it's 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 really difficult to talk about RimWorld and then directly go into Door Fortress without just going straight into comparisons. So I'm going to try and like avoid that <laughs> as much as possible. Um, but uh, Tekkit, I, I know you said that you you haven't even been keeping up on like what's been going on with Bay Twelve, yeah? Uh, yeah, I saw the last uh, devlog for premium version, and I wasn't even able to find the time to click through those links and read the content of the links. I saw the mm -hmm. like bullet point quick notes and i'm very happy with what i read on the last devlog very excited uh -huh. to see bins get fixed in particular i'm probably yeah. excited for the lamest stuff that other people are like okay sure i don't even use bins whatever but uh, i like it I, I mean come on how, how do you feel about the the um dwarven underwear situation versus siege and goblin thong rot i mean come on 
the fact that that situation is stabilized means like mental stability for dwarves going forward and, and like you know the ability for the dwarves to actually avoid their uh, fetishes of elven underwear and goblin uh, undergarments means that like the future for dwarves could be potentially significantly brighter if they can no longer equip them I just love that this is a conversation yeah <laughs> and that thong rot is a is so a uh, I, I there, there is actually a legitimate like concern and threat to the safety of your dwarves when you get sieged by goblins and elves right and th this threat is um elves and goblins can create something that dwarves can't which is undergarments that can make underwear this comes in the format of loincloths and thongs um, they can make them as part of strange moods when cursed by the ancient elder gods or uh, an ancient uh, uh, relative to make an artifact. And then, so there is the rare occasion where you'll have an art piece, but that those don't get equipped. Those get put on pedestals and left in the corner behind glass. Um, but when there's clothing on the ground, the dwarves can equip it. And that's initially when they were put, when thongs and... Um, uh, loincloths were put into the game. Dwarves weren't able to equip them, but at some point, Toadie screwed something up in the code where they were suddenly able to equip them. And what happens if, when a dwarf claims a piece of clothing, it becomes theirs. It goes into their, like, basically their their, their character's inventory, and they can, they can put it away, they can store it, they get sad if it gets destroyed, they want to keep it, right? So they like to hoard clothing, basically. And clothing degrades... And as clothing clothing degrades, they put it away into their into their storage box, and they go get new pieces of clothing as they become available. The problem is, if they can't make undergarments because they can't, if they can equip them, then they will want to claim another undergarment. And okay. because unlike Rimworld in Dwarf Fortress, if something bad happens to a dwarf, that permanently goes into their memory bank. And changes mm -hmm. the personality of the dwarf forever going forward, essentially. And unless it can get discarded but with an overwhelmingly good, different memory of a similar format, which is hard to do. And clothing rotting off of your body is one of the worst, most detrimental mood debuffs you can get on a dwarf. So <laughs> essentially, it's like psychological warfare, where if you get like a whole Jeez. bunch of sieges, and because like clothing gets damaged in fights too. So half the time, like these thongs mm -hmm. that they're equipping are like tattered and about to fall apart when they equip them. And they like put on these thongs and then suddenly they're like overjoyed with their new pieces, piece of clothing that they can now acquire that's been unlocked to them in their inventory. But the problem is, is then they rot off like within a year because they've been destroyed in the fighting. And then, <laughs> uh, yeah, dwarves, dwarves and clothes. Dwarves, so dwarves, and water is the is the easiest way for a player to go wrong. But dwarves and clothes are probably the the recipe for the game to screw itself up. Uh, they're the one thing that kind of automatically uh, can just make it can just make problems. I have had squads, military squads, recently in like my streams in the last couple weeks, and they're out to kill a hill titan or something. And I send a few members of a squad out to make sure they have a good advantage. And one of them's like, oh, hold on a second. There's a there's a sheep leather glove on the ground over there. I'm wearing wolf leather gloves. I think I'd like that one better. And equip, uh, equip something, to equip an item, overrides the squad orders that you give them for some reason that's a higher priority than your orders so this dwarf just breaks off from his friend and it's like hold on a second dude i'm gonna go get this other glove and then i look at their inventory and for some reason they love to equip one of literally everything they'll put 
gloves on and then mittens on top. And they'll put socks and shoes. Well, socks and shoes, obviously, but they'll put gloves on mittens. They'll wear a shirt and a, and a vest and a cloak. They'll wear a cap and a hat or a cap and a hood. They'll wear as much as they possibly can. And so they're always picking up equipment and they hoard a massive amount of it. And I like that the uh, the goblin thong rot, you know, and all that is working. But I'd really like to see civilian uniforms. I'd really like to, because, you know, you can set your civilians to a to an alert. I'd really like to set them to a uniform so that you can tell your dwarves to just not wear so much crap. I, I So I, I had this one dwarf, which was kind of legendary in Long Death. Long Death is a, a fortress that I've been running since August 2020. And my goal with that fortress is simply to get it to 1,000 years, um, mostly just proving that I can do it. Um, I'm currently in the mid 400s and it's like, it's just been relegated to like a couple hours, one day a week on stream so that I don't bore people into oblivion, but it's, uh, it's not a lot happens in this fort, right? At one point we ended up with a surplus of lead. I had like, it was like 14,000 lead bars or something. It was, it was ludicrous the amount of lead that we had in that fort. Um, and so I was like, well, I guess make a bunch of lead jewelry and sell it. Right, because that was something that I could just quickly pump out a lot of at high quantities and sell, and it, it was fine. And uh, so initially, so we started doing this, and I'm doing this for a few years, and I noticed one of my dwarves is really, really slow. I'm like, what the hell's going on? So I selected him, and this dwarf was equipped. Uh, I don't know, maybe like 50 lead rings, like 80 oh lead crowns, <laughs> like ha- a couple dozen lead necklaces, and it's just like, oh, that's why you're so slow. It's because every single limb of you is completely covered in lead, and you're just weighed down, and you can barely move. How are you carrying a boulder? Fascinating. This guy's just a mid two thousands rap artist, but instead of gold, he's wearing lead. That or a Final <laughs> Fantasy character who just needed lead zippers. <laughs> yeah, that's hilarious. Yeah, the stuff, the antics that dwarves get up to with clothes. There, there's a few things in the game that are like, all right, this, this, I'd like to see this get fixed because this is seriously bothering my experience. One is some of the stockpile categories, the whole tools category. It's nonsense. Uh, but then clothes, it's it's a serious, like the whole thing is all over the place. The dwarves I, I wear too love much the way of it. Clothes work. They, <laughs> you can't dump I, it. You know, the, like dwarven inventories where like they don't technically wear uh, necklaces around their necks. They wear them on their heads because necklaces and that type of gear was added to the game before necks were added to the game. Hmm. You know, just and so we have like this weird grandfathered piece of code where like. They they equip. Um, why am I like completely blanking what necklaces are called in Dwarfort? Uh, amulets. They're not necklaces. Amulets. Yes. Uh, they they equip amulets on their heads. So technically, <laughs> like they're like weird crowns. They're not actually going around their neck. <laughs> the game processes it as sitting on their head or on their face. That's funny. I was actually just <laughs> at the end of my stream just today. I was talking to somebody about. Uh, dwarves a bunch of dwarves wearing a trench coat like a whole fort worth of dwarves wearing a trench coat and fighting a hill titan and then i thought to myself uh you can mod creatures to exist as a swarm i wonder could you mod dwarves to exist as a swarm and if you did would they have the (laughs) body plan could you get that that swarm some kind of body plan so it could wear a cloak i have no idea 
I, I mean, I, I feel like it would be much more believable to do that with crundles, though. <laughs> yeah, like probably, yeah. Ten crundles in a trench coat. Hi, I'm a dwarf. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> crundles you- are like these tiny little red, like, absolutely satanically evil critters that are almost harmless. Yeah, yeah. they're hilarious. They're just like little idiots who live in the caves. <laughs> All they, their, their whole plan, their plan of attack, crundles are actually a, a, a serious force of evil. They are very effective. But the thing is, they don't, they're not trying to kill your fortress. They're just trying to make everything you do harder. And they're very good at it because they show up, there's like 30 of them. And the first thing they do is they beeline it to your staircase from the caverns before you realize what's going on. And then all of your dwarves are getting interrupted by crundles. And you try to explain to your dwarves, it's a crundle, just step on it, I guess, on your way to what you're doing. You'll kill it. But then they can't hear you because, you know, you're in meat space. So they're just going to keep getting distracted. Mm-hmm. And then they, and then one of them dies in a doorway and a forgotten beast gets into your fort and everything's history. Yep. Yep. Crundles, yep. man. That's their whole plan. They're just, uh, yeah, they're like little zerglings. Speaking of things that will be fixed crundles. in uh, premium in the next version, uh, jeweler jobs are no longer weird. Interesting. I never considered them weird, but I get it. They work so differently than the other jobs. Well, it, it, okay. So if you go into like your fortress manager, right. Mm-hmm. And you just like, uh, encrust 50 items with, I don't know, emeralds, right. That number will never count down. Oh, the game that's... doesn't realize that that job's been processed. That's what it's oh, referring to. Oh, the improvement jobs. Okay. Okay. I thought it was referring to, again, I haven't been able to like click these links and stuff. I thought it was referring to how jeweler jobs operate on a different mechanic where you select the gem as the job. But no, I guess there, not. There's so many things that are weird. Because like, he, he, t- he talked about this in a Future of the Fortress a couple months back, where it's like, like, it, it, like if, if you uh, queue up a bunch of jobs in the manager for any jewelry-related jobs, it will never count down, regardless if it's it's cutting and crusting or anything. Um, uh, there, there, there's certain issues where like certain types, like there's no gems are generic, and there's no like generic cut gem mm-hmm. job. It's like yeah, uh, you have to specify the type of gem, so you get mass cancelizations the vast majority of the time if you don't have the right gem. Um, and like s- you have to use give and take stockpiles to actually encrust a specific type of furniture. There's no way to like specify what type of furniture or, or item you want to encrust or what you want to encrust it with. Like there's there's so many weirdness things yeah. about gems. That's the part that so. I was thinking. I was thinking the way that that gems for some reason so wood or stone you know you have stone and then you have a material type you have schist it's a schist stone but for some reason gems you don't have a it's just a harley quinopal you don't have an emerald gem you just have emeralds and then you have rubies and then you have every other kind of gem as a unique item and so yeah the the work orders get kind of crazy but I, I just I, I'm so much looking forward because like I just I I don't encrust things period because it's just too annoying I just don't bother like yeah yeah you, you can make things significantly more valuable but like if I can be arsed like I just don't even bother yeah yeah I don't do much improvement either I got to get better at that because I really want to use those materials first of all because getting mm-hmm. them out of stockpiles helps frame rate and it just you know helps the fort stay kind of small. Uh, but also, you know, why not? I always have an excess of labor because I'm too focused on a handful of things, and I could be doing other things as well in my force. You could always be doing other things in Dwarf Fortress. I tend to ignore them because the economy has been so simple for so long. You know, it's like 
the way trading has worked for for so long it's like ah screw it doesn't doesn't really mm -hmm. matter what i sell because half there's certain items that are basically just like almost cheats or exploits that just have such inflated value over everything else that's just like yeah just make me 50 wooden spikes go okay done yeah sell those um to the point where it's just like or infinite like money is just glass right like you can just make glass pipes for all eternity and then just sell that stuff off but like i i'm i'm looking forward to seeing how like changes uh, trading changes in premium and the next update because it's like I, I know he completely Tarn completely reworked trading like a year ago and we've seen the new UI for it and like a few editions uh, and like I uh, like the the items that you can request you're only able to request three of them a lot of values have been like reworked and stuff so um, yeah I'm curious to see how that's gonna change. I would like to see I mean, obviously, this is just me thinking out loud. Tarn, Tarn probably has a plan for it, but I would just like to see some some caps on certain types of items because there are certain things uh, that can be expanded in value beyond reason, like meals, for example, that a meal should never really be worth more than a certain amount to someone because ultimately it's a meal. Like no one's going to pay more than even in real life like maybe you're the one guy who's like i'm gonna go get a thousand dollar meal but usually no one's gonna pay more than a hundred dollars for one meal for themselves because no food is worth that much but in dwarf fortress you can just make the best ingredient you can get the best ingredient and you can mill it and you can add oh, that's this my other sunshine ingredient. wine yeah yeah you use the sunshine my roasted wine sunshine wine and whip vine flour and uh it's just dwarven syrup that are worth forty thousand apiece yeah and they're like look at this wonderful uh you know cake that i've made which obviously is just like a roast in the game but you know the ingredients going into it basically makes a cake and someone's like sugar flour yeah it lower intestines from a ostrich yeah and someone's like so twelve hundred dollars yeah and it's like, it's still just a cake, dude. What I'd like to see a cap where like meals are just never worth more than a few dwarf bucks each because, you yeah. know, when would they be? It's also just fantastic to see that leather is going, the amount of leather you get from animals is going to be based on animal size. That's fantastic. Which means like you kill a forgotten beast, which is like, I don't know, the size of a small bus. Oh, no. <laughs> and so now I'm just like imagining about like how much leather you're going to get from, I don't know, Osan, the giant farting camel that has red eyes and a shell for some reason and mandibles and a ta and four tails that shoots out poison gas. Like how, how much like. I don't know. Drongo, do you have you ever played Dwarf Fortress? Yeah, I have played Dwarf Fortress. Uh, Enough to it was, get into it was cooking. Quite some time ago. Um. I, I basically went through this phase where I was like, okay, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to learn how to play Dwarf Fortress. And I had like, I think it was around 2012 and I couldn't find any really good YouTube videos for it. So I ended up finding, I think it was off Reddit, this like big uh, Word doc file. I think it was like 25 pages of like how to get started in Dwarf Fortress and kind of talked you through the step-by-step. -step. And basically I spent like, four weeks going through this step-by-step -step process of trying to get my colony running and I, I got it there and uh, then I put it down and I came back maybe a couple of weeks later couldn't remember anything and I was just like 
you know what? I, I don't know if I want to dedicate myself to <laughs> yeah. getting a PhD in, in learning Dwarf Fortress and I went and played something else. But I have played Dwarf Fortress and I really love reading the stories about it. Like the, the one that always stands out in my mind is the whole saga about cats dying from alcohol poisoning in the bar from licking their feet because the dwarves would spill the, yeah. the beer on the ground and that sort of stuff. I think the really big difference between Learning Dwarf Fortress in 2012 and Learning Dwarf Fortress in 2022 is RimWorld didn't exist, and RimWorld does mm. use a lot of the same. Like, the games are completely different. Like, I I don't even like comparing them because of how different they are. And they're getting more different um, as the expansions yeah, and come Yeah, like, they're, they're going in different directions now. Like, it's, it like, in some ways, like, Biotech, I want to say, I biology or something anyway now um uh biotech actually adds in some mechanics that rimworld has like you know kids right um and also vampires oddly enough but um same with royalty royalty uh, added some mechanics that dwarf fortress also has but dwarf fortress is very far in the simulation direction but like yes just the act of managing x number of people and giving them tasks and building up a thing and defending the thing like it's like once you've played a first-person shooter, regardless of how complicated the next one is, you already know how to move forward, backwards, left, and right, and aim and yes. swap guns, right? Like you, you could play Escape from Tarkov or Quake, and like there are similar mechanics between those two games, even though they are vastly different games. Um, both very high skill and hard to play in their own right, but like vastly different skill sets, and that's kind of like where Dwarf Fortress is at now. Like Dwarf Fortress has actively benefited from the existence of Stardius, uh, from mm-hmm. the existence of Prison Architect, Rimworld, and all that, because it that is the game that like put down those ideas as mechanics for a video game in the first place. Um mm-hmm. but like so so sitting down and playing Dwarf Fortress these days, I think is like I I, I the number of people that have just like tuned into my chats that are just like, yeah, it wasn't that bad. Like it, it, I mean, it took me a day, but like, it wasn't that bad. And that is often what I get from people now. I can't, yeah, I can't recall exactly, but I went through, I think I, I gave up on Dwarf Fortress the first time I tried it. I think that was before I tried RimWorld. And then I played RimWorld and then I went back to Dwarf Fortress to try it out again. And it made way more sense. I, I think I played RimWorld between my first and second shot. And yeah, it helps tremendously just because, um, you know, that you need your little people to make food and you know you need to put them to you know put beds somewhere for them to sleep in you just know these things that are common to the genre and Mm -hmm. you know speaking of it as a genre that with a lot of games that share the same sort of core foundational skills and expectations uh the first game we talked about stranded alien dawn i think that was the first um Mm -hmm. really has me thinking that this is this has really gone somewhere as a genre like dwarf fortress mm-hmm. made it to you know dwarf fortress evolved it didn't evolve the genre i guess it birthed evolved <laughs> into rimworld and that was a yep. more digestible 2d format and now that's and evolving prison and prison architect too yeah and now that's evolving into a three-dimensional format and uh, hopefully people will make their way backwards like I did, you know? So hopefully mm-hmm. someone will play the 3D one and then be like, oh, well, RimWorld's just got better mechanics, you know, even though it's 2D. I had a really funny conversation, actually, with one of my teammates, FG Squared, on this very podcast a couple weeks ago where uh, she mentioned that Stranded is her favorite 3D Dwarf Fortress-style game. And I was like, honey, you can't do that because, <laughs> like, Dwarf Fortress is 3D. Um, 
which it yeah. is. Yeah, like it, it's presented in a two D plane, but it is a three dimensional game. Which, uh, like, it, just because the the view position is weird doesn't mean it's not a three D game. All of every, all of the entities in the world are processed by your computer as three dimensional objects. Mm. So, like, as much as Dwarf Fortress looks two D, like weight and size of creatures are processed in centimeters cubed which yeah, right. wrap yeah. your brain around that <laughs> yeah yeah it's funny because the other another parallel in terms of a genre being born from one very popular game or very at least very intelligently designed game in the case of minecraft it was also very popular uh is minecraft and the whole voxel genre however uh rim world or not rim world uh Dwarf Fortress's genre that it birthed, this whole colony sim genre, seems to be going, like really moving forward into new places, whereas the voxel thing in Minecraft seems to usually just be little uh, experimental games that don't really get very far. But, uh, but mm. I mean, Dwarf Fortress, in my opinion, in terms of it fathering a, you know, a new kind of game for gamers is more successful than even Minecraft. It's been the, doing very well. The other thing about Dwarf Fortress that everybody forgets about, and this won't be in premium or the next update for a period of time because it still needs the UI to be reworked, is the other half of Dwarf Fortress, which is Adventure Mode. And yeah. Adventure Mode is quite literally Kenshi, mm -hmm. if you've ever played Kenshi, oh, yeah. which is, you know, open world kind of weird party-based RPG thing where you build up a crew, crew of people and you go out and you go on missions and then eventually you build a base and you eventually build like a small city and you manage that city and then you b get bigger and you b get eviler and then like somebody overthrows you and then your city falls apart and then you go and you run out into the wasteland and you do it again. Like <laughs> adventure mode can be that Yeah, if you're good at it. it. And adventure mode can be even more than that too because adventure mode you can go visit your fortresses. You can go visit your destroyed fortresses. Like, your fortress could get overrun by, I don't know, an army of were-badgers, and um, the whole fortress could collapse. And then, so you, I don't know, make a dwarven demigod hero in a different fortress, part of the same faction, and you uh, go off into the wilderness, and you found a fortress using that hero as your spawn point. You build up this fortress, and you make the highest quality armor. You, you base this entire fortress on simply forging the best weapons you possibly can. And then, after five years of time passes in-game, you, 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 you retire that fortress, and then reclaim that adventurer in that fortress that you just spent the last, I don't know, 12 hours building or whatever. Collect all of the best possible gear, and then go out into the wilds and train by murdering uh, wild leopards, I guess, and then go and kill that fortress of were-badgers that destroyed all your stuff initially, grab all your artifacts, take it back to your new fortress, and then reclaim the new fortress, which is a ridiculously open and flexible sandbox that yeah, I can't wait until people get their hands on it. Yeah, I think that... In an accessible format. There, yeah, that's a, that's a very important and big thing to say about Dwarf Fortress to people who don't really know it. And actually, I've been considering doing, uh, upon release of Premium, a little, like, introduction to Dwarf Fortress for people. Because a lot of new people will come to the game, or people who have been watching the game, or even, like, veteran people. A lot of people who have been playing it haven't really uh, thought about it the way that it's that Tarn has created it uh, where what you're playing in Dwarf Fortress is the world. When you generate a world and you see 
like, okay, 200 years of history have passed. Here is your world. That's the game. You're looking at that's the character creation. Yeah, you're looking at the game right now. This is what you're do. This is what you're really making. You just happen to be mm-hmm. zoning in on one fortress at a time or one adventure at a time. But the world is your game. And so I was thinking about making a little introduction video uh, to Dwarf Fortress because a lot of people coming from games like RimWorld and even Kenshi uh, is kind of sort of in the same category. Uh, and now these new games like Stranded Alien Dawn, they're they're coming from games that started at that zoned-in point of view and are sort of... Ex- Trying to zoom out, maybe? Yeah, they're they're zooming out, but they're they're kind of zooming out blind to what what is actually outside in Dwarf Fortress. Because if you if you think about just fortress mode in Dwarf Fortress, what happens from the outside? If you're if you're stuck in a box, you get thrusted into fortress mode and you don't get any experience of the world, all that happens is occasionally you get raided. Or occasionally you get trade caravans. Or occasionally, or occasionally a, beast. a flying chicken with one eyeball shows up and burns your whole fort down. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so these other <laughs> yeah. games, they take this Dwarf Fortress format and that's what they see because they didn't look they're not inspired by what Dwarf Fortress really is, which is this massive living world. They're inspired by this this box. What's it called when you have a the box with the language? Uh, there's a name for it. It's a someone someone's box. Rip. I was gonna say Rosetta Stone, but I don't think that's what you're. That's what no, you're it, it's someone's box where you don't really understand what you're doing because you don't know what's outside of the box. You just you just know how to do it. Anyway, point is. Um, these other inspired games are only inspired by the inside the box of fortress mode. So when you're playing RimWorld, you get the raids, you get the trade caravans, but what's living in your world? Just mm. just generated points of interest on a map that you can go attack. You know, you can visit them, but who who inhabits them? It's just random nobodies. Everyone's just a random nobody, and. You know, one of them might have the tag, I'm the leader of the random nobodies, but they're nobody, you know? And, or they'll mm-hmm. have the tag that I'm related to one of your pawns, and then you kill them, and then that pawn gets mad for 30 days. Yeah, yeah. Whereas in Dwarf Fortress, in my last fort, at the end, I went out and I I journeyed to a, a one site of another civilization, and I stole the slab that on which was written the decree by a demon that rose from hell of their existence in now the mortal plane when they arrived and gave birth to a goblin civilization like that was that's where those goblins came from they had a original demon that that broke through into our world from hell basically took started creating the goblins or let the goblins in i don't know exactly how that works crafted this slab and hundreds of years of history for them occurred for all of them. I don't know where that demon was. He's got to be somewhere or he's dead. But I stole a slab and I put it in my tavern. You know? <laughs> I love that way of articulating it. I think that's a very cool concept. Like, for me, like, I've been playing for, like, the last 18 years a, a game called Worm Online, which is the predecessor to Minecraft. Uh, and instead of being a sandbox game where it's very small scale, it's a sandbox game that is a perpetual world 
uh, and it's an MMO, uh, MMORPG. And one of the really big things about Worm Online that I personally really value is the idea that the game itself is that perpetual world where everything within it has a context and a history and so you can go out into the world and you can dig up artifacts from past settlements and you can find ruins or uh of settlements or you can find a ruin that is you know recently uninhabited and is starting to be decayed and claimed by the wild and there's a, a greater kind of narrative and a greater i guess importance to your uh position within the world and so I kind of like that that way of looking at Door Fortress. That's not something that I've thought of before. Yeah, I think that that's really that. So the original intention behind the game, right? The and this is pretty much written as as what Tarn wanted to make. Tarn and Zach uh, is that you would you would start with a fortress in order to establish some kind of uh, you know home base or some sort of familiar point of interest in the world but then ultimately you would be able to take what you've created uh, in adventure mode just like blind was describing before and go out and interact now on behalf of your fort or just on behalf of your adventurer or who whatever you want to do and interact with the world as a whole and so really it's kind of written into uh lore or just written into fact that Dwarf Fortress really is about the world. It's not about mm -hmm. your fort. Your fort is just a means of interacting with that world. And people have kind of lost yeah. track of that because the game has so far and for so long kind of had adventure mode as an accessory. But I think blind, sure. I think you're right. Once adventure mode matures, people are going to be like, oh, wait, this isn't just about making forts. You can build a fort in adventure mode. You can, yeah. Like straight up, you you can play Dwarf Fortress within adventure mode. And there is there's also a um a DF hack command right now uh, and plugin that actually lets you seamlessly swap between fortress and adventure mode. Um, so like as, as the as those two modes develop and once those like seams between them kind of get severed a little bit, like the, the even in its current format completely vanilla, like you can do a lot with adventure mode. But I'm just really, really curious to to see. Like, well, I mean, I mean, like you know, I'm sitting here like at, positioned to profit quite heavily from the release of Premium Door Fortress, right? Because like that is a large portion of my content. That's the vast majority of where my like views come from, and I I, I look at it and I go, I really, really hope that people latch on to Dwarf Fortress and understand why it's different than everything else that has attempted to copy it or emulate elements of it, but enjoy it for what it is. And I hope that they stick with it long enough that when we get the fully reworked version of Adventure Mode, which are both going to, I think, come out faster than people realize, like Dwarf Fortress is going to release soon. And when I say that, I mean, it's 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 imminent. basically ready to go. I described it as <laughs> It's imminent. imminent. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, like I, I I keep getting like shady DMs from people saying like Hey, you're gonna be busy in X X time frame and stuff like that, and I, I I look at that and I go I hope people like it when it releases, I hope people latch onto it and I hope they stick with it long enough that when Adventure Mode is also released, 
that they try that because the biggest problem that I think Dwarf Fortress has had is learning Dwarf Fortress is kind of, it's not an easy task. Even if you have played RimWorld, even if you mm -hmm. have played other games like it and you understand what the game wants you to do, it's still not easy. Um, yeah. It takes time. I mean, for me, it was it was maybe a 15-hour learning curve for me. When I sat down, I was like, screw it, I'm going to do it. And then after that, it was just learning the muscle memory. But a lot of people don't have that kind of time to, you know, just dedicate to bashing their forehead against a wall until they understand what they're looking at, right? Um, yeah. And I, I really... And so most people, they get into Fortress Mode because that's what's more accessible. That's where there's more tutorials. That's where there's more community around. That's what's publicly available um, to an interested audience member. But adventure mode is kind of like this weird cloudy thing. Like I, I did a poll on my YouTube channel a couple months ago that was just like, what do you play? Fortress mode, adventures mode, and then legends mode, which is almost a joke. But Le legends mode is just where you go and read about worlds. Cause my older sister plays Dwarf Fortress, but she doesn't play either mode. She just generates world and reads legends. Um, and it was like 2% was legends. 7% was adventure. The rest was fortress. Yeah, and, and yeah, wow. I, I look at that and I go, I really hope that we can extend that adventure a little bit because more people need to look at adventure mode. Yeah, I think that also the the not just the accessibility, but Dwarf Fortress, when I was away from Dwarf Fortress between my first attempt of playing it and when I really got into it, I was playing RimWorld and a lot of the reason I wasn't tr still trying to play Dwarf Fortress is because I thought, well, why, why don't I just play RimWorld? It's just an easier Dwarf Fortress because what, sets Dwarf Fortress apart? What makes it worth playing as opposed to the more accessible things that look like it is currently kind of hidden. It is in Legends mode. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's Adventure mode too as a means of playing differently than Fortress mode, but in terms of what the game is and contains- the world generation. Yeah, that, that's different than something like RimWorld. It's kind of hidden. You kind of can't see it right now unless you go looking for it. So- that's one of the reasons I wanted to, you know, I'm thinking about putting a video out that's just like an introduction to Dwarf Fortress, uh, you know, concurrent with the release of Premium. Hopefully people will go looking for it and find it, hoping to find uh, tutorials on how to get started. Of course, I hope they find those as well. Um, but if they can find an introduction video that's like, by the way, don't stop playing this just because it's harder RimWorld. It's not harder RimWorld. It's actually this whole world that no other game has this is the only place you're gonna find it easier room world <laughs> well that's it's a much easier yeah. game to not die in <laughs> it's a mechanically but. harder rim world but once you know the mechanics it's extraordinarily easy to make a safe fortress mm -hmm. it's extraordinarily easy to contort the game into what you want it to do which is the point of the game yeah and yeah so i, I really want people to just see that there is something in Dwarf Fortress that's big and it's important and it does not exist in any other game. And that, you know, if if you show people that, they'll be like, oh, okay, it's worth learning how to play Dwarf Fortress, even if I already know how to play Stranded Alien Dawn or RimWorld, because I can't get a living world with 500 years of history and the daughter of a king who's married to my mayor and, you know, has lost it's two kids. drunk in the tavern on the ground for some reason. Yeah, and went insane because her kid died to a, you know, a, a werebeast attack three years ago. 
speaking of insane, I had a necromancer lady show up who was already nuts. She was just like already like phased out of existence, running in circles naked, like crazy, right? Um, and I couldn't expel her because her spouse wasn't present. But her spouse then showed up in the next migrant wave. And um, almost immediately she had a kid. And of course she can't take care of this kid. So she just like threw him over her shoulder and just like kept sprinting around screaming. Um, <laughs> and so I've got this naked like lady necromancer that has like five kids now. And the kids are just like almost exactly like nine months apart and just like on the ground, just crawling around because mom refuses to take care of them. And dads in Dwarf Fortress aren't very good. Like they, they don't even realize they have kids most of the time, I think. Um, so they just kind of ignore them. So it's basically like just like I've got these babies crawling around and then people run by and dump a bucket of water on them when they get thirsty and like the, the throw food at them <laughs> when they get hungry. Jesus. There you go. Gotta, gotta raise We are kids. getting chores though in the next version. So kids that are uh, more than one year old uh, can haul and clean, and also between that and guild halls, we can use those as schools, and so you can actually have like well skilled and talented kids by the time they grow up. Nice. Just got to put the toys in the in the forge. What a guild. yeah! What a happy coincidence! And I I am a hundred percent sure that there was zero crosstalk. So I'm sure it's a a complete coincidence uh, that we're seeing an amazing expansion for a great game over at RimWorld uh, that involves children being an opportunity to make great contributors to your colony as well as children being uh advanced into contributors into our fortress i mean they've been that way for ages i mean they I always mean, we, we got guild halls yeah, like three years ago now that's true that's true i guess the big difference is that they can now have jobs so i mean i suppose it's not that much of an advancement but uh you know I mean, they can work. children do as they please yeah the thing is uh I, I think we might be able to strength train them now. So, well, I mean, if they can carry boulders, you can strength train. Exactly. Them. You're going to have a lot of hauling. Although, let's, kids. We'll, I'll be nice. I'll give them wheelbarrows. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's better than the days what? of like making <laughs> dwarven daycare, which is just like yeet the children into a pit and throw yeah. food in sometimes. Right. Look, little Melville, <laughs> I'm going to need you to put on 35 lead necklaces. <laughs> that's why we can't have uniforms taken okay i see kids uniforms for, for children for child abuse what do the problems. children wear nothing so that they don't get scarred when their clothes fall off also 50 lead necklaces yep exactly you just need to be wearing necklaces and bracelets and rings yep i think yep. platinum is heavier than lead isn't it yeah, but platinum's not very accessible. Yeah, yeah, but we could have we could have maybe enough platinum to get one kid walking around with enough swag oh, yeah. to, you know, attract the merchants. Wait until he's unbelievably strong and completely indefatigable and completely unbreakable and then transfer to the next one. I I brought this up to the um to the Dwarf Fortress Roundtable guys. Have you been paying attention to the size of your dwarves in the military? So I can't cuz I I don't use dwarf therapist, so uh uh I have been noticing dwarves in excess of 120 kilos. Which is like a bear. It's literally... I was watching your stream and you're like, that's like a large bear. <laughs> it's literally the size How, of a black dwarves bear. Dwarves are like four feet tall. <laughs> yeah. It's the size of an adult black bear. I was like, this is double. One of them was 130 something centimeters cubed. Basically double the size of a human. Instead of fat bear week, you should have fat dwarf week. I should. So... <laughs> Um, I was thinking, 
if we have a kid, right, and we give him 35 lead necklaces, <laughs> and then we put him in the military as an adult, we may very well have a juggernaut on our hands. Are you, are you suggesting we just we start breeding dwarves for their military ability? You know, I'm saying we're, that we're, we're we're breeding genetic super soldiers. I'm saying that everyone needs to grow up into their own unique personal, you know, uh, contributing role in society. And if that happens to be as a freakishly large military powerhouse, then you know, brick, yeah, house, please, okay, brick, yeah, maybe then they should be able to reach their potential. Hoy vey. Well, after all of this, we're going to need a really, really, really large mortuary, which is probably going to require a mortuary assistant. So, uh, Drongo, do you want to talk to me about mortuary assistant? <laughs> Amazing segue. Um, yeah, mortuary assistant. I played it on stream for the first time the other night uh, for a Halloween redemption. Uh, it also coincided with a twitch anz event uh had some front page time which was uh very very cool and uh, i can confirm that game is pretty dang scary i don't really go for horror games that much a lot of the time unless it's a kind of a special event sort of thing and i really enjoyed it i thought it was a game that was very well thought out from the perspective of trying to avoid a lot of the really kind of bland just yeah i'm gonna rely on a lot of jump scares to get you and a lot and yes it has a lot of jump scares in it but it also has a lot of just like really creepy moments and even the jump scares kind of do things to uh i guess take you off guard even though you would expect the jump scare to be coming so for example you know uh there was particular points where i would be expecting a jump scare to come and i would kind of like lean into it and like run towards the demon that it appeared and be like oh yeah i'm gonna get you and then the jump scare doesn't happen and i'll be like oh okay well i guess it's not gonna jump scare me and then i turn around and <laughs> turn around in game and then the jump scare would happen it kind of does a lot of things to take you off guard and just really subtle things to kind of set the atmosphere and it's just a very creepy game and i think if you're into that sort of genre i think it's executed really really well um and very yeah i'm very impressed with it and uh i won't be playing it again uh for a long while isn't I'm I'm looking at Steam reviews of this and they're all just complaining about grandma and the fact that they want to do their job. <laughs> yeah. Go away, grandma! I need to work. Isn't it? Uh, <laughs> isn't it a single scenario type game where you replay it for different endings? Uh, yeah, correct. Yeah, so it does kind of have a uh, a continuation on to get the different endings. Um, however, it is set within the same storyline, so it's not a complete fresh restart. Um, uh, but you're definitely put into the, a, a similar sort of setting and, but there's different accesses, uh, different parts of the areas and the environments that change and unlock as you kind of progress through and seek out those different endings. Um, and there's different events that happen within those playthroughs that will trigger the different endings. Um, so I so far I've done two of the five endings for the game. I caught uh, I didn't catch any streamers playing it yet, but I caught a a Let's Player channel on YouTube playing it, and immediately mm -hmm. it kind of struck me as something that would appeal to 
uh, Phasmophobia players. It's a different mm. kind of game mechanically, but it has the same mm-hmm. sort of, you jump into a scenario, you try to get the result you want, maybe you don't, but then you jump in again. And it's sort of like a you know single scenario, like a short little play, uh, but you're just attempting mm-hmm. to uh, get out of it you know, like to to get the good ending or whatever it is you want to 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 achieve in it. Sure, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, it is kind of separated out into more bite sized chunks rather than being one big, really full on uh, story. Uh, I don't know if it's quite segmented up. I think if you do enjoy Phasmo, you'll probably enjoy this. Personally, I don't enjoy Phasmo that much. I don't. For me, it doesn't have enough kind of gravity to it whereas this kind of has a little bit more to kind of tie you in and a bit of a personal investment and there are enough story elements to make it interesting for me personally and I think that's what's really missing for me from Phasmo is there's no kind of narrative behind it you just kind of get plonked in and you know go on find your ghost go on toddle off and you kind of go through the same sort of process where yeah, sure, there is definitely, you know, a, a bit of repetition between the storylines trying to get the the different outcomes that you want. Um, but at least what I've played, there was a, a good amount of variety and a good amount of progression of the actual story and the narrative um, that's behind the game that it runs off of to make it interesting. Yeah, that's, it's definitely, I think you're, that's, that's right. I don't really have too much to say about it because I haven't played it myself. I've seen maybe a couple hours of footage of it. Uh, but yeah, Phasmophobia is a little more arcade-like in the way that you mm. play it, and it seemed like Mortuary Assistant is much more of a film. It's much more of a horror story that you're kind of in. It's, yes. it's cinematic, you know? Yeah, I I, it's, I would definitely describe it as more of an experience rather than an arcade game, yeah. I mean, I look at this and I kind of go, yeah, I think I've seen kind of everything that this game's trying to do in like other places, but I just kind of want to point at something, which is this is published by Dread XP, which is rapidly, I think, becoming one of the most, okay, I think there's 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 two publishers that are boutique publishers that I look at that put out games ra- rather frequently these days, and I'm like, okay, these guys have an aesthetic and they're good at it and they have an mm-hmm. eye for it, and I swear all of these games are made by the same people, and there's not that many of them, but like, also they're largely quite interesting. And those two publishers are Dread X and um, New Blood. Except New Blood, they just crank out some of the best like modern retro style shooters. And then this, it's just the best kind of psycho- psychological horror collections and neat one-off games. Which, you know, I, I I like that we're at a point now where in this industry where we can have you know companies putting out things like dread desolution and then also the mortuary assistant for a very specific kind of audience you know i'm just i'm I'm glad that this exists even if i don't play them myself i think i think that's a, a a decent point because i don't think it does anything uh you know absolutely revolutionary uh, there's nothing that I would say a single one thing that's like, okay, this is the really key defining thing that makes it different. I just think the overall execution of everything that ties it together is better than probably any horror game that I've played in a first person kind of genre in at least several years. I think the last game 
in fact, that I played that's sort of in the same horror vein that kind of gave me the same sort of overall investment and feeling of being genuinely like afraid at certain points and really creeped out was uh when i first played um uh oh god what was what's it called um the uh, sci-fi one with the shooter what's it called um you're not thinking alien are you no 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 uh oh god it's really old now Dead space? i just had a complete mind no no before that uh fear the original oh, fear. fear game. I played that last year. Um, Fantastic game. Oh, it's such a good game. Such a good so game. Goofy. But I remember the first time I played that, I just like, I had to, ha- to have breaks every like 40 minutes or so because I just felt that kind of exhausted from the actual experience of playing the game. Um, See these ghosts? But, uh, shoot yeah. them. Now shoot them faster. <laughs> now go into <laughs> slow motion and shoot them faster. That game's fantastic. Yeah. I like that uh, Dread X. Uh, I don't know what the rest of their games are like, but the aesthetic of Mortuary's Assistant, at least, was like, hey, you know that Uncanny Valley place? Why don't we just get real deep in there for this horror game? Dread X actually got their start on Steam specifically in 2020, um, putting out mini games collections where they got other uh, developers who work on other kind of boutique games to make 20, 30 minute long uh, PS2 or PS1 even style first person horror experiences that are just like short, like kind of, it's a thing you play through it and it's over. Um, and they sold collections of them. And so they, so they, I think they've done five of those collections. Now they put out a game oh, called dread Desolution, which is a couple of those developers that came together and they're trying to make like a big open world RPG horror game, very heavily inspired by Morrowind. They put mm. out, uh, a dating sim where you date Cthulhu. Um, Oh yeah, God. yeah, sucker for love. I just realized now mm-hmm. I'm looking at their page. I didn't know they the same people made Mortuary Assistant. That's incredible. I, I don't know if it's the exact. I, they, these are all made by different studios, largely. But like, oh, published the, by uh, DreadXP. Yeah, yes, DreadX publishes these okay. games. But like, they just they, they also put out a thing called Spookware, which is like you're playing an RPG where you go to school during the day and then at night you play these haunted game cartridges as a skeleton. It's like I, I don't know. Like they 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 put out weird stuff, and I and I, I appreciate weird. I like weird. Weird's cool, even if I don't yeah. necessarily have direct interest in playing the weird. I just I like that it exists. For sure, I agree. Um, I'm gonna real quick talk about Cosmo Tier, and then I think we're gonna jump into news because this has been a long game section. Um, so I I I scratched the surface of a little game called Cosmo Tier. Um, this past week. Uh, this is one of those games where you build a spaceship in space and fly it around. Um, there's, and it's like, it's very much just like a grid-based builder thingy. Um, you, it's a, it's a space game. It, it, have either of you actually played um, Star Sector? I have not. No, I don't think so. Okay. Because I would describe this game as like light Star Sector, but with spaceship building. So um, there's a tiny little bit of like RimWorld style building when you're actually constructing your, your ship. Yep, very good. Uh, when you're actually constructing your ship, so you are uh, put, putting uh, like blocks together and managing your power and uh, distance from item to item. But like your actual crew, um, aside from being assigned different jobs, don't actually matter that much in the grand scheme of things uh, from what I can tell. 
Um, there, the, the part where this game gets interesting, though, is there's three main modes of play. There's creative, where you just build the biggest ship you want, and you ram it into another big ship, and you have a good day. Uh, then there's a campaign, where you fly around in an open-world sandbox, you take quests from space stations, and using uh, money that you've earned from those quests, uh, you can buy bigger parts for your ship, you can buy blueprints and upgrades for your ship, and build bigger ships. Um, you can hire more crew if you have enough beds, and then you can uh, find abandoned ships out in the wild and the, eventually start to build a fleet. Um, at one point, I accidentally ejected half my ship and then jumped into hyperspace and left my crew behind. And when I came back, they were just corpses floating in the air, and I felt kind of bad, uh, but it's fine. I told them they were fired before we left, so it's, it's all good. <laughs> uh, no, no legal ramifications there if nobody finds their bodies. <clears throat> anyway, uh, but uh, very very quickly, the game tells you to go hunt down pirates. There's a faction system. There's it, Very much, it, it feels like a a, a light star sector with a much higher focus on ship progression star sector all, all the ships are predefined and there's huge variety of them and their mechanics are super super dense but this is more about building like uh, can i make a ship the shape of the enterprise which turns out you can um and so as just kind of a open world space sandbox it seems relatively simplistic there's enough mechanics there that it's it's interesting and something that like I want to return to. I've only put about three hours into the game, but I, I do want to return to it because I enjoyed those three hours a whole lot. Um, but uh, the, like, so for the surface level of the campaign map that I've scratched so far seems relatively simple, but there's enough there that it's just, it's a solid space game. You know, fly to area, blow up pirates, fly to other area, explore systems, seek, go after signals, uh, chase after pirates that are blowing up civilians, uh, take take over a space station um, that was run by pirates and then use it as a hub to make money so you can build bigger ships. It's it's that kind of thing. And it does that really well. But on, so on top of that, it has co-op, which is even cooler because you can bring a friend into your single player game and give them a ship. And just let them go do their own thing elsewhere on the galaxy. And that's kind of awesome. So, I don't know. It's it's something that I've only scratched the surface of that I want to play more of. But I, I I think this is something you should take a look at if if you want to fly around in space. Yeah. <laughs> because it's a cool that one of those. Cool. It looks awesome. That's I'm looking cool at it right now. And we were talking about Space Station 13 and 14 earlier. And it kind of looks like, uh, spa like the aesthetic of it kind of reminds me of Space Station 13, except your ship actually does something and your crew has been successfully lobotomized, so they just get to work. And uh... yeah, yeah. They're, they're, they are very efficient, the crew members. But like, there's there's really neat little details. Like you'll pull up to a space station, you'll be like, all right, I need to order uh, 500 rounds for my cannons at the front of my ship. Okay. And then you see all your little dudes jump into spacesuits and like fly out of the ship into the station, pick up the actual physical ammunition from the station and put it into your ship. And you can actually buy out all of the station's supply and you have to wait until the transport ships from some other station elsewhere in a different system you can't jump to yet because it's too far away, bring the ammunition over and drop it off. So there's like, there's stuff going on in this game that I want to explore that I think look really neat. Um, and, you know, just watching small ships go when I blow them up with my massive cannons is very satisfying. Yeah, it looks really, really fun, especially for like the creatively minded person who wants uh, to spend a fair amount of time tinkering and building and making something perfect and making something powerful and then a very little amount of time affirming that what they've created is in fact uh, a massive success. <laughs> and even less time when you jump into a station and into an area that has like a ship that has a gun that you don't have yet and then it just cuts your ship in half in one shot, which happened to me once. Yeah, I mean, for a creative player, I'm looking at it, and I think the aesthetic is great because it makes it very clear, I think, what you're doing. Like, every, I don't even know what these parts are, 
But looking at the parts that these ships are made out of, I mean, I can kind of see exactly what, you know, like how the, the ship is built. There's no like guessing. It's not, it doesn't look that complicated, even though it looks like there's a lot no, of stuff it, you can build. It, it's very like there, there's a very in-depth tutorial that the game comes with. And very quickly, I was just like Xing out of all of it because it's like, oh yeah, no, that's simple enough. I get it. I get it. Okay. No, I played a space game before. Yeah. I know what I'm doing here. Okay, sweet. And yeah. then it's like, yeah, okay. So we need, they, they need to run to the, in, in the ship itself in order to keep things powered, they need to take batteries from the central core of the ship to different parts of your ship. Okay. So you don't want your like laser guns to be too far away from the power core because they have to run from the power core to the laser guns to deliver the batteries and then like you don't want your you don't want your ammunition supplies to be right next to your power core because if something goes through the external armor and blows up your ammunition there goes your power core yeah it definitely looks like something you can just jump into like you know there's there's it's very much just like fiddle around and fuck out and find out and it it works yeah yeah like these orange parts are probably engines i'm just looking at a picture they're probably engines the red parts are probably guns definitely the Either the purple mm. parts or the blue parts are shields. I don't know. The other one might be batteries, but obviously it looks like a very simple game to to just kind of get into. Ships don't fly without a cockpit, man. No, that's true. That's true. Which is, I, I, I was trying to repair a ship in the wild and I, I, I repaired all the bits and it wasn't working. I was looking at it. I was like, what's, what's missing here? I was like, oh, there, there's no cockpit. Oh, and then I zoomed out a little bit and realized that the cockpit was floating off by an asteroid belt close by. I was like, ah, that's where the cockpit went. It's now its own ship now. Um, so, you know, I had to <laughs> add an addition to it to put a cockpit back on, and it worked. It, it's cool. It, it's it's a neat little game, and I, I, I can't wait to play more of it. But I think that we should go to news, because this has been a very long episode of this podcast. So I think we'll be right back after this short break, and when we return, we will discuss the happenings. Uh, there isn't too much to talk about, but we, we do have a few things to touch on. So we'll be back right after this. Hi, this is Tudikiri. I'm a full-time content creator and Twitch streamer focusing on indie and strategy games. I'm advocating accessibility in video games, especially when it comes to simulation sickness. I love chatting with my wholesome community, achievement hunting, and winter. Look for Tudikiri on Twitch, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and Patreon. And now, back to the podcast. And we're back with episode 41 of the Halcyon Frequency podcast. I'm still blind, I'm still hosting, and I'm joined by Tekkid and Bloody Drongo. Um... We've got a couple things to talk about here. And the first one is actually a, a lovely little quality of life thing for, for YouTube. So YouTube has done a, a channel page redesign, although it's pretty mild, unlike previous channel page redesigns where it's like it's it's like a different website. It's pretty mild. It just simply adds two tabs and a few other smaller things around the, the edges, but it adds two tabs to channels. So if a channel has uploaded shorts, it adds a shorts tab. And if they've uploaded jeans, it adds a jeans tab. And uh, don't forget about short shorts. There's, there's also a short shorts tab. <laughs> So uh, they add a new tab. If a channel's uploaded shorts, um, right next to the videos tab, there's now a shorts tab. And then also if the channel has streamed, there is also now a live streams tab. Thus, the home tab is just kind of like a section of everything. You can have a videos tab for normal uploaded videos, a shorts tab for shorts, and a live streams tab for live streams, which instead of just having everything in one big old videos chunk, they're now separated. And it's a pretty small change, but I, I, I think it's kind of awesome, actually. Oh, it's the obvious change that needed to happen because man, was it messy before. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm really glad to see that change come through. I've been uh, producing content on TikTok for a while, and I've been hesitant about putting it onto YouTube as Shorts just because it just looked really messy. And I knew this change would eventually happen. Um, so I can foresee myself now going pretty deep into the whole YouTube short thing 
and uh, properly getting on that because I also didn't want to start a YouTube, a whole new YouTube channel for shorts, which I know a lot of creators have done um, just to keep that content separate, uh, which kind of sucks for them because they've built these channels around shorts content and now the, the fundamental stuff has changed. But this is definitely a positive change in my opinion. Yeah, my first reaction when I saw the the little screenshot or the little Twitter post with the images of it, when I saw that and I didn't read what was happening yet, I was like, oh no, YouTube's trying to become like TikTok or something. And then I realized by like giving people these different kinds of feeds, and then I realized, oh, wait a second, this is actually just sorting out the different kinds of content, which are normally in that long stream you have to sift through. And I've got two two people I watch one does a lot of the community posts uh, and that clogs up my feed. And then another one does a lot of shorts. He's a funny comedian, Midwest guy. Uh, and he does just as many shorts as he does videos. It's like half and half. So it's like great to be able to just go to his shorts or go to his videos. Mm -hmm. I still think YouTube should have a pants, but have I run that joke into the ground yet? Yes. Okay, <laughs> moving on. Um, so F4, Formula One Manager, a, a game that I was quite excited about and still planning to purchase, um, uh, uh, developed by Frontier Developments, um, is largely ending update support um, after their next major update. Um, they, they did this via uh, the F1 Manager uh, subreddit and uh, other public channels, and it's pretty telling because like, you look at it and it's got zero karma. Um, so you can't tell how far down it's gone, but it's pretty far considering it's got 804 comments on the thread. Um, people are not happy um, about this. And this is also reflecting in the Steam reviews for F1 Manager. And as a fan of Formula One and uh, someone who was just kind of hoping that they would spend a while polishing like Formula Form F1 Manager and then maybe put out some DLC and I would pick it up on a sale, this kind of is bumming me out. Like as somebody who hasn't even played the game because I was like, usually you would think a game like this would either uh, be released annually, which maybe that's what they're doing, or alternatively to be updated annually to kind of continue on with um, the like the seasons. I mean, like the, the game hasn't been out the length of uh, the F1 season yet, and it's already ending major updates. So, Drongo, do you, do you have any thoughts on this one? Yeah, I mean, it's a game that I've played and I have enjoyed. Uh, it's definitely got its flaws and I don't, I, I haven't recently gone back to see what these major patches are updating. Um, I think the really, I think the difficult thing here is that I think this is the type of announcement that the community tends to react very emotionally about and perceive it as being overly negative but I kind of will look at it as being more of a reality check of the industry, right? Because it's an announcement of the end of new content, as in updating the actual models for the cars to reflect the uh, IRL uh, developments in terms of the bodywork. And there's some content updates and features that have been tweaked and added um, as part of this final update. But they're still going to be doing actual game patches where the game needs it that's still going to be ongoing support for the game but the game itself isn't like a uh a paid like a paid service game so i think it's really difficult especially for a team that is not a massive massive triple a studio to provide ongoing support i don't think it makes sense for them to continue to add in lots and lots of content to this game which i would suspect 
is going to be an annual title, at least for the next little while, which is why they're moving on to having their staff working on probably the new game. I mean, there's probably a chance that there's a decent portion of the studio that has been working on the new game for a, a good while now, um, but they're just going to be reallocating those resources from the old game to the new game. Um, and I think that just makes sense. Um, I think it's, you know, unless you want games to continue to sell like lots of DLC and skins and, you know, have a subscription model or some kind of way of monetizing it over a long period of time, I don't think it's realistic to have this expectation that a game should be supported indefinitely. Um, and I don't think that it makes sense for a game like F1 Manager 2022, um, to be supported indefinitely because it's going to become irrelevant next year when they bring out a new game. And sure, you can have a different take on, you know, should you be releasing an annual title every year for a game like that? That's probably up for debate. But I think under that structure, I think this announcement makes complete sense and I totally understand. And I don't have any major issues with it. And I think the game is still really enjoyable for the F1 uh, fans out there. I think that the kind of tricky thing here is the the easiest and most direct equivalent um, comparison for this game would be the football manager games, uh, which are published by Sega Europe and made by a company called Sports Interactive, surprisingly. Um, and football manager, the way their release cycle works is they put out their game in November and it is updated until the release of the next game. So this includes like player transfers, teams shifting, uh, brands changing and all that. And I think that when you purchase a game like Football Manager, you expect that kind of release cycle until the release of next year's game, which is quite literally at this point just paying your subscription for the next year of Football Manager, right? And I think that is the level of support, or at least close to that level of support, uh, is what people who picked up F1 Manager were expecting. Like, I'll, I'll be completely honest. I'm, a, I'm not like upset because I have, I don't have money in this game. I don't have time invested in the game and I don't have like emotions attached to it, but I completely understand the outrage from the perspective of somebody who, if I had purchased it, I'd be kind of pissed because I want the game to continue to reflect formula one until the release of the next game. Sure. I mean, I, I, I can definitely understand that. Uh, from that perspective, I think there's probably a few different factors that can lead into that not being the reality that we've ended up with. My guess is just purely budgetary, uh, budgetary reasons and the reality of that, that what the studio needs to do to uh, continue to be able to make these games in the first place. Um, the other thing that the other factor that could be a potential uh lead here that's out of their control is going to be things around actually having the ip um having restrictions about the uh the window by which they can you know have rights to capture and then represent in the game things like the sponsors on the cars and things like that there may be restrictions around that as well um there's no way of of really knowing but i think uh, I think a lot of the time, I don't think this is necessarily something that I'm going to go out and criticize uh, them for, but I can also understand people's disappointment. Um, so yeah. I'm just reading about it now. And what I can glean from a lot of these comments, it they're saying it's only been supported for two months and that there were a lot of bugs on release and stuff. 
it seems like maybe they're also cutting mm-hmm. their losses and just accepting a loss in PR as well for the sake of maybe just trying again. Mm-hmm. From yeah. from from my perspective, like I was um the one of the reasons I was a little bit cagey on the release of F1 Manager is just of when it released, right? It released more than halfway through the season, right? Like it 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 was like the last third of the season is when it released. And it's like you'd think that they'd release it either like on the summer break or like day and date with the with the start of the season, right? Like that 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 is when you launch your sports game is when the season starts. And then you go alongside of that like the F122 uh usually releases a, or or I guess this past like the 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 first person simulator game um releases usually around the summer break because that's when games sell right like towards the end of the summer break is when you release the the simulator game you have like the first half of the season to kind of like watch live and play the old game and see what the season's looking like and then they can match that as well as possible in the game and then release the game um but i i don't know to me like i was hoping that this would go one of two directions you know uh, either game releases and uh, it sells well enough and they can just kind of keep updating it for a couple of years and then release another one in like three, four years and then everybody's happy or B, it would become an annual franchise and they would update until the release of the next uh, launch. But I think what happened is the game does have a lot of bugs and I'm not entirely certain how well it's sold. So looking at it, I, I, I kind of like there was a lot of marketing behind it and I look at it right now and I go, this has 4,000 Steam reviews, which means probably it's sold couple uh, maybe around 150 200,000 copies right like it, it probably did all right but i i wonder what the expectation was there i wonder what like their i i wonder what uh, formula 1 was hoping for on that and who knows how much of that formula 1 is taking i don't know how expensive that ip is so i i mean it's it's just it's just sucks is kind of where i come down on it yeah i think it's the like when you compare, I think that's an interesting comparison to make in terms of the release schedule because uh, the F1 games, the actual driving games will release typically around the end of June, start of July. So around halfway through the year. And yeah, uh, F1 Manager, I think came out the end of August. Um, so there is a, a you know a pretty sizable gap in between there. And it and I do agree that it does feel a little bit too late. So maybe that's something that they'll need to look at in terms of their, um, in terms of their development cycle and how they're going to manage that. I think the game itself is like pretty niche in terms of how incredibly in depth and detailed it is for me. Like as a massive F1 nerd, I loved it. Like the little tiny details and actually optimizing the setup and, uh, you know, actually going through the different ways that you can manage your your car with the tires and strategy and uh all the different setups for different tracks and that kind of thing i absolutely love but it feels like it does have a pretty limited audience because i feel like as f1 is only really feeling like it's now just coming into kind of becoming a bit more of a mainstream thing instead of being very niche I don't know if there's a massive appetite just yet for this type of game. So I would be interested as well to wonder if there is some kind of maybe shortfall in terms of the amount of interest and how much they projected to actually get back from the first iteration of this game um, from a you know uh, an investment perspective. Maybe it just hasn't performed as well as they were hoping, which is meaning they're going to have to cut their losses early and, and move on to the next one. 
Yeah, well, uh, speaking of cutting losses, um, my childhood. So let, let me take you back in time for a second here. Um, I, uh, I, I, never, I didn't have internet until like 2006, right? And uh, when I was little, and this was like 10-year-old Greg, right, in like 2004, uh, I, my, my parents would take us to the library. You know, they'd drop us off in the kids' section. Mom would go into the more adult section. They, we'd look for books, and we'd pick out a couple books, and then we'd uh, go to the little kids' play area where there was actually, like, babysitting where they would, like, take care of kids and, like, let them be supervised in the library with a librarian, and then Mom would go do grocery shopping, come back and pick us up and take us home. And uh, the highlight for me of this was there was computers, and these computers could be used. And these computers uh, had access to the internet, but it was very limited. Now, um, let me tell you the the glory of uh, JesusBibleVerses.com. Now, uh, I couldn't play games on these computers because they were all blocked, right? But JesusBibleVerses.com uh, had a little pop-up, right? And it would put Jesus of, uh, down in the bottom right hand of your screen, right? And Jesus Bible verses, I didn't know this at the time, worked kind of like a VPN and let you get around their firewalls. Um, so I could go play games <laughs> on these computers. Um, very quickly, I found like the VeggieTales web games um, and uh, various other games that obviously a little kid would find. And then a childhood friend of mine, who I won't name, um, pointed me at a website called Miniclip and also addictinggames.com. Uh, but Miniclip uh, was a website where uh, you could go play little games that would run in a browser. And most of them were demos for games that then wanted you to go to a website to buy the full game, but some of them were just full games. Uh, there was Flash games, there was games that run in, uh, in Shockwave, early versions of Java, you know, th things that would run in a browser, right? And this is how I discovered franchises like Trials. Uh, tri the original Trials, which later got ported to Xbox and things, was marketed through Miniclip as a demo. And the first five levels and a little level editor were available in there. Uh, there was versions of Worms. There was just dozens of neat little weird, some inappropriate, some not generally kid-friendly games on Miniclip. And Miniclip's been shut down. Um, it's dead in the water. Even like... As recently as like two months ago, I would like randomly open up Miniclip on stream and just be like, let's find some stuff. See what's on Miniclip in the current era. And um, so I just, I don't know, F's in chat for Miniclip. This this just, it just made me like weirdly sad when I saw this. I was like, oh, there goes Miniclip. There goes like this weird, like it, there's no logical reason for Miniclip to exist in the current year. Like demos are very common on steam and like demo discs don't exist anymore and like you don't need to go to a website like miniclip to find games to play but i just have this very very fond set of memories sitting in the public library playing trials uh and smashing a dude in a motorcycle into uh like burn barrels with his like and breaking a lot of bones um while jesus reads me um Bible verses in the bottom right of span, <laughs> part of the monitor on Netscape Navigator on dial-up, and I, I miss that, and it's it's never going to come back. But end of an era. Yeah, end I never era. visited MiniClip, but uh, I did spend a lot of time on addicting games, which apparently is still around. But MiniClip, addicting games still exists. Wow. Yeah, and Newgrounds is that still around? God, Newgrounds is a game publisher. They publish games on Steam, believe it. Oh, really? <laughs> and also, some of the most popular wow. games in the world are actually like Newgrounds games, but they're like shared through Fortnite, which is bizarre. Oh. Like little kids play games on Newgrounds frequently. Huh. Yeah. Like yeah. one of like the, something like the most played game in 2021 was actually a Newgrounds minigame. <laughs> it's like a, sure. an Among Us clone. <laughs> but yeah, no, uh, huh. Newgrounds still exists. 
Damn, I remember that but, there was just like no, there, there was no supervision on those platforms too, or there's no like standards. And even like as a little kid, you're <laughs> like, oh, let's just play some games. And like half of the games are like, make a house that doesn't fall down or like ride down this stick figure path or something on your stick figure bike. And then the other ones were like, murder these people with with these guns and there's blood everywhere and like try to kill all of them. And it's like, wait, wait a second. Hold on. I'm nine. Now there's a Pokemon orgy <laughs> inside of a Pokeball for some reason. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like I'm nine years old. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm a kid where I need an adult. Um, but uh, you know, this, this is, this has been an extremely long episode of this podcast. And I just want to thank uh, my two co-hosts for, for coming along on on this very long ride on episode 41 of the Helsing Frequency podcast. Generally, we've been like under an hour and a half recently. So like two and a half. That's oh yeah on my recording Marathon. right now. I was pushing it. So um, Drongo, thank you very much for, for, for giving up so much time. Same with you, Tekkit. And uh, let's start off with our guest, Tekkit. Can you can tell people who you are and where I they can find you on the internet? I am Tekkit. I have a YouTube channel that is... Probably going to start getting updated again soon. I've been away from it for a while, but it is YouTube.com. Wait a second. Slash TechGood. I believe YouTube gave us handles now, but I'm pretty sure mine's still the same. YouTube.com. You, you, you probably could do at, at Oh, yeah. It's now at. You know what? They just gave us all these handles, and I just got my email. But anyway, I'm TechGood on YouTube. And I'm also TechGood on Twitch as well. Uh, T-E-K-K-U-D. And I stream Monday Wednesday and Friday, sometime around uh, 4, 4.30, 5.30 uh, Mountain Time. You can figure out the time zone. I don't want to deal with those right now. And uh, yeah, <laughs> Mountain Home that's time. where you can find me. Damn it. And Drongo? Uh, I'm Bloody Drongo. I'm a full-time content creator. Do uh, Twitch, YouTube. Uh, I also do commission art and voice acting. And you can find me at twitch forward slash uh, bloody drongo, or one word, or over on Twitter as at the bloody drongo. And I'm blind. You can find me at blind IRL pretty much everywhere. And I talk about Dwarf Fortress more than I talk about it in this podcast. So if you uh, follow me anywhere, you know what to expect. Um, also, if you like this uh, this this show, this this here podcast this is the Halcyon Frequency podcast. You can find more episodes of this at halcyonfrequency.com and uh, places where podcasts are harvested, anywhere a podcast grows. If you can't find it on your particular podcast app of choice, let me know and I'll make it appear there. And also, uh, if your podcast app happens to have a rating system, be that stars, likes, thumbs up, favorites, reviews, please leave a review. I think we're a five-star podcast for a five-star runtime, at least in this episode. And uh, But frankly, any ratings help, and trying to get ratings on iTunes is like the equivalent of pulling teeth out of a cat. So if you could please leave us iTunes reviews, that would be awesome. Thank you very much for listening to this episode. I just want to say a real quick thank you to Peter Pohl and Paul Mile for the lovely intro and outro music that you heard on this episode. And until next week, don't change that dial. This is Halcyon Frequency, signing off. Bye.